This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt here, your life coach, your guide on the side. Who's, who talks like that? That's a... That's a, it's like a sports guest. It's Howard Cosell, maybe. Oh, well, there you go. I don't know. I don't know. Hey, happy National Radio Day. Today is the day of National Radio. Happy day. It really is cool because a lot of... Uh, I'm finding out that some of these millennials don't like the word radio. Is that true, Michael Pond? I don't know. I like the word. Do you like radio. the word radio? When when I'm talking to people and I tell them I work for a radio station, they say, "Oh wow, really? Are you a DJ? Yeah. Do you talk like this? No. Why don't they like the word? What would they prefer? Well, well, because they're not radio people. They're pod. They're podcast listeners. They're vloggers. They're all of these other things. But radios like archaic. Spotify. Maybe I come from a weird generation because that's I I wouldn't want to tell someone. Oh yeah, I love to watch vlogs. Do you, do you like? But you would say, would you say, I love podcasts? Uh, you know, no, I'd say I like the radio. I like to listen to NPR. I, I like BYU Radio. I I don't mm. know. That's why you're here. That, yeah, that's that's why I'm here. Well, and let's be real, Mike. The ladies like that you like that. <laughs> Right? It helps with your dating life. Today, by the way, is also national um, – it's ch- chocolate pecan pie day, which mm, is – you know wow. I just have to mention that because yeah. how could you hate that? And uh, lemonade day. Love lemonade. So today overall is just a great day. A little radio, a little pecan pie. And who doesn't like lemonade, lemonade with pecan pie? Exactly. <laughs> hey, the, did you see the, the, tr- the Trumpster is at it again? You know, CNN has an interview with him. Chris Cuomo interviews Donald Trump. And it's it's actually amazing what he does. And today on the show, we are going to be we're going in depth to figure out what really is Donald Trump's style, because there's something he's doing that no one else is getting. And Dr. Ben Voth will be joining us. He is from SMU and is their debate. He's the, the professor over their debate program. And we're going to find out, how do you debate with a Donald Trump? I mean, he's a tough cookie to corner. In fact, Chris Cuomo tried to corner and just threw out a bunch of topics. Did you watch all of these? It's amazing. Like, he threw out the weirdest question. Like, okay, so let's say you meet the Pope. And you're talking to the Pope. And then, and then Chris Cuomo gave him this really weird scenario. And let's say the Pope, you know, started getting down on you about capitalism. Like it's it's destroying the world. It's the source of greed. What would you say? And so he's baiting him into like taking on the pope on capitalism. And Donald Trump says, I would tell him that ISIS is out to kill you. Hmm. Where did that come from? Donald Trump takes a complete weird turn and then ends up in like some weird neighborhood of content (laughs) of ISIS. That's either really, really smart or yeah. or not. Well, and guess what? I, I think it's smart because Terry South, our incredible producer, went and figured out that this – what Donald Trump does. He heard it somewhere on a podcast. He is – he uses the shaggy dog debate method. Mm, which is? Which is – it's where you tell stories that play upon the audience's preconceptions – and you go in an extremely long-winded anecdote 
characterized by extensive narration of typically irrelevant incidents, and you terminate it with an anticlimactic and pointless punchline. Well, that just that. So you basically you bore people to death and you distract them with anecdotes that feel right. Mm -hmm. Well, yeah, ISIS is bad, but. But when it's done, you're thinking, what did they just say? Yeah, but in a weird way, you've kind of felt warm and fuzzy because we did talk about the Pope being safe. We don't want the Pope to be hurt by ISIS. <laughs> it's just like just uh, playing with a big shaggy dog. And you don't, you know, the dog's well, really like. Hairdo, yeah. I mean, that kind of fits it's, the shaggy dog. <laughs> that's kind of true. It's the shaggy dog trick. You know what? And I think I'm going to start using it more. But really, don't all politicians use that? Yeah, but not like Donald. He's, like, yeah, he's definitely good at Donald, that. and what it is, because you, you, a, a shaggy dog really might be like a tiny little dog, but under all the shag. Mm-hmm. So you don't know where the dog is. You could play with the shaggy dog's hair and not find the dog for years. <laughs> and some people might but even... by then they're elected and, I know. and, and you're all like, kinds you're of You're the trouble. president. And then we buzz that dog. And we're like, what the heck? Well, you're what just did we a little get? punk. <laughs> Anyway, interesting stuff. So Dr. Ben Voth will be joining us a little bit uh, later, and he's going to walk us through really what is what are the tricks of Donald Trump, especially in the debates. we got a lot of debates coming up, and he's running circles around everybody because they don't know how to handle him. And you, he's so different. And the yeah. shaggy dog, you don't know exactly what we just talked about. <laughs> anyway, we'll get to that in just a few minutes. But before we do that, let's go to Kathy Aiken and find out what's coming up on the headlines. Three firefighters were killed in Washington state yesterday when the blaze they were fighting suddenly shifted and they were trapped. Four others were injured in the incident in an area called Twisp. All residents there were ordered to evacuate. South King Fire and Rescue Assistant Chief Chuck Collar spoke about the tragedy. That's a constitutional right. Mr. Trump can say that he's for this because people are frustrated that it's abused. And we ought to fix the problem rather than take away rights that are constitutionally endowed. We will get the right clip to you a little bit later on. The blaze, by the way, one of nearly 100 fires burning in the West. An 18-year-old black man was shot and killed in St. Louis yesterday. Police were serving a search warrant on a home when the man fled. When police told him to stop, he allegedly turned and pointed a handgun at the officers who shot him. Police say four guns as well as crack cocaine were recovered in the home. The shooting sparked protests in the area last night. Nine people were arrested. Former subway pitchman Jared Fogle was in court yesterday, charged with distribution of child pornography and engaging in illicit sexual conduct with a minor. Fogel reportedly admitted to participating in a five-year criminal scheme to exploit children. As part of the plea agreement made in court, Fogel will pay $1.4 million in restitution to 14 minor victims and is required to register as a sex offender. Here's U.S. Attorney Josh Minkler. We're all pretty much beat, so I can't imagine doing this. The 37-year-old Fogel could receive up to 12 and a half years in prison. His wife is reportedly filing for divorce. Republicans are ramping up opposition to the Iran nuclear deal after revelations of a secret side agreement was discovered involving Iranian inspections. The deal reportedly allows Tehran to use its own inspectors to investigate a site the country is accused of using to develop nuclear arms. The agreement was apparently worked out between IAEA and Iran. The U.S. was not a party to that part of the agreement, but were later briefed and endorsed it. Republicans are trying to stop the historic agreement while President Obama pledges to veto any vote against it. And Matt, this is just really an amazing story. What's that? I want to see what, you're, what you think about this. According to scientists from Ohio State University, an almost fully formed human brain has been grown in a lab. 
Oh, boy. The brain reportedly resembles that of a five-week-old fetus and could be used to study diseases and also used to test drugs for Alzheimer's and Parkinson's. Wow. The brain is engineered from adult human skin cells and is about the size of a pencil eraser. They say the brain also contains a spinal cord, but they say there's no ethical concerns because the brain cannot think. They say they're focusing on using the brain for military research to understand post-traumatic stress disorder and traumatic brain injuries. They say if the claim is true, it could revolutionize personalized medicine. Well, you know what? It, that is so interesting Isn't because all of the Planned Parenthood stuff is about trying to get all of this tissue and brain tissue from babies. And mm-hmm. now you can grow it in a Petri dish. Yeah, from human skin cells. Oh, that wow. Strange? Is that amazing? You know what? I is, mean, that is just uh, – this uh, is something you think is way down the road. Yeah. But apparently they're doing it now. And you know what's so great is – because do you not know like three people that need a brain? Oh, more than three. I mean, now it's like now you can just order one up. <laughs> just shake some skin cells Give it to off. To the shaggy dog, and <laughs> right. we'll be ready to go. Holy cow! Yeah, yeah that's good stuff. Isn't that amazing. You know, we live at a cool time, don't you think? Yeah, I mean, to be able to really, if they could figure out how to get the medicines better for Alzheimer's and Parkinson's oh, man. because of doing that, yeah. that's just amazing. I love that's it. That's crazy. I guess this, the, the scary part is where they'd really go from there. You don't well, know, yeah. you know what, what they would do. Yeah, you, the, yeah. The imagine all the ethical issues oh, that will eventually sure. happen. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh. But you know what? We need more brains on this earth. <laughs> so whatever you can do, I don't even care if they come in a jar. Just get more brains. Good job, Kathy. Hey, we got a great uh, guest coming up in just a few minutes. Um, We'll take a break. But when we come back, Ben Voth will be joining us. He is a professor at SMU and uh, a director of the debate program, I guess, at SMU. He also is um, he's uh, the director of uh, the Bush Institute and an advisor or director of debate at the Bush Institute, which is pretty cool. We've got the guy. At basically Bush's library and institute, who's going to walk us through rhetorically all of the tricks that Donald Trump uses to confound his competitors. They do not know what to do with him. I'm going to ask him about the shaggy dog debate theory. We'll be right back with Dr. Ben Voth talking about Donald Trump and his crazy communication style. Stick with us. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. You know, with the presidential campaign in uh, full stride right now, we wanted to take a better look at what uh, is going on with the candidates. And there's one candidate, I don't know if you've noticed it, that seems to manipulate all of the airtime, all of the spin cycle, all of the news. Uh, Donald Trump is his name, and um, it seems like he, he's, he's running circles around a lot of these other candidates, in fact, most of them. In fact, also many of them seem afraid of him. So I wanted to I wanted to have an expert come in um, to help us sort through what's really going on with debate with uh, with Donald as a debater because we could talk about the past debate, future debates coming up, but also just what is his style and and his communication style and why is it you know garnering so much attention. Dr. Ben Voth is joining us. He's a professor and director of debate at Southern Methodist University. And more importantly, I think he's, 
He's a specialist in helping people get their voice out there. He helps top speakers. He helps national speech champions, Holocaust survivors, government leaders to ensure that their voice is being heard. And we, we're, we're so excited to have you. Dr. Ben Voth, thanks for joining us today. Oh, yeah, it's a pleasure, Matt. Thanks for having me. You bet. It's, it's such an interesting – the minute I saw Donald get out of that first, um, that first debate, I, I didn't personally think he won. It seemed like he kind of got zinged. And yet the next week he's the winner of everything and, and rich and a millionaire, a billionaire. What, what is going on with him, uh, Professor Voth? How come he's so – how come he's getting all the attention? Well, I think it's a very, it is a very interesting question. I do think it's fairly unique in that he is this far ahead, you know, in the polling and things like that uh, so early on. And, and that, like, again, when he's compared to the 2012 primary process, that you've got a lot more public interest in this yeah. process than you did at this time in 2012. Uh, I think a lot of it actually has to do with factors that are not all related to Donald Trump. Hmm. I think there is a high level of public frustration with politics generally. And that, that's part of where it, and it's not nearly as big, but even why Bernie Sanders is to some extent right. on the other side of this question able to get a, a pretty big jump on Hillary Clinton because he's seen as a, a strong reaction to conventional politics. And clearly the biggest thing going for Donald Trump is that he's seen by the public as a very dynamic statement, probably the most dynamic statement against conventional politics. Mm. And, and he's and then, you know, he's, he's jumped on that, right? That. He's taking oh, advantage yeah. of that. Right. And, and that is, does typically happen at the end of like two terms of an American presidency. You know, it doesn't matter you know, whether it's Bush or Obama, the public after eight years of the party controlling, they're, they typically are somewhat exasperated. Mm-hmm. Now, I, I do think we're, there are some other factors feeding that, but I think we are dealing with a level of populist outrage that's that's fairly significant. By that, I mean, like, more than 60 or 70 years have passed since we've had this kind of populist yeah. outrage. And I think that's where the media is having a hard time. And I, me, too. I mean, I'm trying to understand, like, hey, what's going on here? Well, you, you bring up a great point. I think it's like four of the top leading five candidates, uh, four of the five aren't even politicians professionally. They're kind of the outsiders. Coming right. in. I think looking at it that way is a smart way to do it. You start to see the trends in this. They're like, yeah, they're setting aside, the public is setting aside the established politicians and trying to bring insurgents, you know, into the process. Mm-hmm. That, that seems very obvious. And then that begins to explain more where, you know, no doubt Donald Trump is a very, uh, you know, uh, abrasive <laughs> rhetoric. And so he accentuates every aspect of that trend. And so, yeah, I think. I don't, I don't know. I mean, I'm, yeah. I'm starting to think, like, yeah, maybe he, he could go all the way. I, I'm like a lot of people. I think that that seemed unlikely. But right. Still seems somewhat unlikely. But, yeah, I don't know. Well, talk about this. Did you did you happen to see his Chris Cuomo uh, CNN interview? I did not. I've read something yeah, about it. It I just happened. La- I mean, they just showed it last night. But he the, and this is what I need you. You're the expert in, in speech and debate. Uh, so Chris Cuomo posited some interesting, weird kind of hypothetical question. If he met the Pope, uh, if Donald met the Pope and the Pope started taking him on about capitalism and, you know, the, the, the negatives of capitalism and how it, the greed and all this stuff, you could just see Cuomo's trying to set him up. Uh, what would you say to the Pope in return? 
And Donald, this was his answer, Dr. Voth. He said, I would tell the Pope that ISIS is trying to kill him. Yeah. And I'm like, I did read that. Did you read that? And everyone's like, what? So, okay. So rhetorically, what is he doing? Why would he go to that? I mean, he's obviously dodging something. Right. But what's 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 his theory? What what is what does Donald do that that keeps, you know, working? Well, I do think that particular example that you're giving, what I think is very uh, at play there is, is when we talk about this public frustration issue, there is an issue of agenda setting to how the media arranges issues. And I do think part of the public frustration that Donald pops into is to uh, take a question like that, like what does the Pope think about capitalism, and then to turn it around with an agenda setting argument, which is, Basically, in this case, ISIS is not properly rated with the threat that it actually is. Yeah. In other words, that the agenda set for ISIS is too low. And so he can do that on any issue then. Anytime he's asked a question, he can then say, hey, here's something that the public wants to talk about but that you don't want to talk about. Again, when I think that's where the media feels awkward because it's like this is actually a lot about the media's the public's anger at the media, yeah. and that, that Trump is able to say, hey, you see this journalist asking a question, what I'm going to do is, and, and again, you see that in the other insurgent candidates as well, I want to talk about this, and even though it arguably is evasion, like what we're talking right. about, it's also tapping into a sentiment the public has, like, you know what, I don't want to talk about that, or, uh, and, and to be honest, I think there, part of the substantive part of this is that there is a tension between uh the killing of Christians by ISIS, which, again, I think the public is uniquely upset about and doesn't think the current administration prioritizes, and that does connect to the Pope. I think that's where it becomes salient. They're kind of like, you know, the Pope doesn't seem to, this is a mediated thing, doesn't seem to take seriously the genocide of Christians in the Middle East, and that's that's a fair problem. I mean, mean, again, that's one of those questions I work on. There's a lot of genocide questions. Like, okay, that's a problem. So... But it does set up kind of a, a little bit of a non sequitur, and I'm like, I don't want to answer your question. But there's a lot of potential for that on a variety of questions that candidates might be answered. And, yeah, uh, Donald is very adept at just stepping off, off the question and saying, I want to hear what I want to talk about. Right. So really what I'm hearing is that Donald really – and this is probably a key to all effective speakers that I mean that want to move their audience – is you have to know what your audience feels. And he, Donald might be uniquely – skilled at understanding, you know, the hot buttons of the general population. I mean, his yeah. his audience. Oh, I think that's definitely the case, and I think he's got um, – I was actually pleasantly surprised, and I did not know this, but that actually one of his main communications directors is a graduate of our school here at SMU, oh, really? Hope Hicks. Yeah. And, you know, I think that her his assistants have helped him, you know, get a handle on – what the public really thinks. And obviously, yeah, absolutely. Communication one-on-one is know your audience. And, you know, the other thing I think that goes with that is that he is not uh, divided by a multitude of audiences. And one of the other audiences that we don't like to talk about is that like there, there are funders. Normally a candidate has to think about True, who's huh? going to pay for yeah. my candidacy. Well, he doesn't have to think about that. He just thinks about what would, what would help me. And he doesn't have to wonder, like, oh, would my donor be offended if I said this? That there's not that internal delay for his directness. And yeah. that's a very 
logical part of every other candidate's calculus. Like, okay, there's the public and there's my donors, and they're different people. He doesn't think about that. Man, it's really he he does have a unique opportunity, doesn't he? He doesn't have to bow to so many people, and it really, in a, in a weird way, it also he only has to really validate himself. Right. <laughs> and, right. and 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 talk about the issues that apparently matter to his will we, we talk about the impact Don, like, cuz Donald has a whole other weird set of power over it seems like all of the other candidates. So it's one thing to kind of play the media and even and he's he's a he's a dynamic agenda setter. I mean, he's going to shift the topic to wherever he wants it to go, but it it seems like Sometimes it seems like the rest of the candidates are mesmerized by him. Oh, I think that is that is an overdrive right now. <laughs> I think that's absolutely true. Yeah. Now that this, like you're saying, these new set of polls show that the insurgent candidates are the ones that are doing well and the establishment candidates are falling back. I think you now have candidates who are yeah, absolutely uh, adapting themselves to, to the way that just style of Trump, and you have the agenda of Trump. Mm. So I think they're definitely doing that. Yeah. Let's do this. Let's take a break. Again, we're speaking with Dr. Ben Voth from SMU, and he is the director of debate and advisor to the Bush Institute and associate professor at SMU. He's here to help us understand what, you know, what is the this Trump phenomenon? What is, what is really going on rhetorically in his speech? What What sets him apart? I mean, one thing he's the he's the anti-establishment candidate, and he uh, he's also and he really is the anti-media candidate as well. Powerful stuff. When we come back, we'll continue the discussion. Try to figure out, uh, you know, what is his magic? Why are so many afraid of him? And how does he use his own rhetoric to scare people? I mean, basically the other candidates. Well, and probably half of the country that will never vote for him. Stick with us, folks. Understanding Trump. This is the Matt Townsend Show. We'll be right back. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. We're dissecting Trump's uh, rhetorical abilities today and trying to figure out what is really going on. Joining us on the phone, Dr. Ben Voth, who is the director of debate and advisor to the Bush Institute and associate professor at SMU. Um, he, his real expertise is helping speakers, um, advocates, government leaders, even Holocaust survivors, uh, to to learn how to get their voice heard, to speak and present themselves in a way that people would want to listen. And that's why we wanted to talk to him about Donald Trump. Uh, Dr. Ben Voth, welcome back to the show. Yeah, great to be here. Great, great to have you. Us. Talk to me about, um, like, the debates. What do you see as a debate expert and, you know, an, a consultant to people that have to go take these high high stakes debates um what do you see is is well, is going on there well i do think it's interesting and i did watch and do a lot of analysis for the the first round of debates and i, I have to agree with you that i kind of scored the debate for trump as not something that was really helping him a huge yeah. amount 
I, I had told most commentators that I thought he actually maybe lost one or two points. However, I did say, and I think this is proven true, that I didn't think it would knock him out of the lead. Yeah. I didn't think anything had happened that was decisive. Because, and again, I don't really like this, but I think it is true that you can commit gaffes in a debate where it can be semi-catastrophic. <laughs> and yeah. that, that, I didn't think that actually happened for no. any of the, the various candidates. I watched the 5 o'clock and the 9 o'clock one. Um, I think the other thing that, that's you know really difficult about these debates, and everybody is talking about this, is that there's just so many of them on a stage mm-hmm. at a given moment that it's hard for clear dynamics to emerge where you have, for example, you know, in the October finale of debates, you know, a one-on-one confrontation. Again, for me as a debate purist, that's what I would idealize. I'd really love to see, even in this situation, I would really love to see these people paired up and go through what we as debate professionals would call a tournament, and they would just go one-on-one and see who they could beat and who they couldn't. That would be great. Um, And then rank them? Honestly, that would be good TV. Right. You know, you would be like 4-2 after six rounds, you know, and... I think that would be fabulous, and that's something I've, I've been trying to throw out there. And like, I would, I would happily host that. Oh yeah. The other thing that, that I think would help, and honestly, would in, maybe in certain ways help with with some of the distortions of what we're talking about, is that it, it would be good if they were debating and not them debating the journalist. Yeah, I right. Get into a little bit of fuss with journalists. It's not a criticism of journalism. I'm just saying that that debate, in its purest form, is just the two debaters, and I think it would be useful. And you saw a little bit of this with Chris Christie and Rand Paul just briefly in right. the first debate, where you where they would cross examine each other. Yeah, and by the way, and that think, and that is fascinating, isn't it? Because yeah. you get to see how their brains work, and then you also get to see who's really thought it out and who kind of just got caught on their heels. Right, and that's where I think it's somewhat misleading, and there's obviously a big factor of the analysis of the first page is that you have this big dialectic between Megyn Kelly and Donald mm-hmm. Trump. Well, it, you know, that is interesting, but that actually really, it should be more of a dialectic between him and other candidates, and I think if that could happen, I think, you know, for better or worse, I think it would be better for the public to see the candidates kind of going after each other a little bit more directly. That's why I would like to see it sort of narrowed in certain ways. I could even see, like, you know, let them pair up, let two of them debate two of them, mm-hmm. but make it about that, you know, and let them sort of say, I agree more and affiliate more with this candidate. And similarly, you know, Donald Trump sees his partner as this other person. Let them, you know, let's see formats like that that feature them literally questioning each other and cross-examining each other and not getting into so much of this easy game where it's like, well, I disagree with the journalist moderator in yeah. this way. And they're going to score points on that. We can see that very easily. And, and I don't totally disagree with the point that's being made there, but pure debate going all the way back to like the Lincoln-Douglas things of the 19th century, like I'd love to see more of that. Yeah, head-to-head. It, it seems like maybe it might be more interesting for the rest of us if we had our universities. Like, I mean, I would love to see a debate at SMU where, a, where an academic like yourself was leading the discussion instead of – maybe a journalist. Yeah, no, and I've written some articles in the media about this. Like, And I, I've literally offered that. Like, I would be very happy to moderate and, and to really, and to be a, and this is what normally is the case in junior high, high school, college debate. Like, the judge or the moderator is not seen. It's right. really all about the debaters. Yeah. And, and then afterwards, yeah, everybody can have a free-for-all about who won, who lost. But I, I do think, and I, I did write about this, like, I thought the thing that happened in 2012 with Candy Crowley, I think it was honestly oh. just very embarrassing. Yeah, no, that was bad. That you would intervene in the middle of a debate and say, like, well, here's how I score it right now. Like, that's absolutely not <laughs> what's supposed to happen. No, and that, and, in fact, and it, tur- I mean, it, it turned thing. I mean, it, it impacted. Oh, clearly, clearly. And that's where, 
And again, I don't think the people are fully aware of like how popular these debates are. And that's what I was saying earlier about like even this one we just had, viewership was sky high. And mm-hmm. when you understand that in these coming October debates, sixty to eighty million people will watch these things. That's crazy. This, this is something that only the Super Bowl really surpasses easily. You know, a, a really popular TV show has like five million viewers. Right. These debates is... are something that the public really craves, and they have a huge impact on how the messages are interpreted. Let me let me ask you this. Again, we're speaking with Dr. Ben Voth from SMU. He's the director of debate there. Um, it, we did a we we talked yesterday about a, some information that came out about uh, that Donald Trump speaks on about a third grade level. They say third to fourth grade level and vocabulary kind of level. And part of that I think is because he uses he uses the same words over and over, but he also uses words like idiot and stupid and but <laughs> yeah. but um, but other others speak at like an eighth grade level or a ninth grade level. Does does the level that they speak is this one of the reason why Trump might be resonating is just because it's his language is so simplistic and he doesn't get bogged yeah. down in stuff like some of the other can't like Jeb Jeb Bush just he 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 even he just seems maybe it's just a tenth grade level <laughs> you know what I mean versus right. a third grade level right I do think no, I think there's something very much to that in terms of like yeah and, and normally we see about an eighth grade language level from candidates or public figures of any type and yeah third grade. I mean, that's standing, that's distinctive. And yeah. again, I do think in a lot of cases it's overly simplistic. Um, but it's also, and again, when I compare it to Jeb Bush, like you were just doing, there, there is a measured level of contemplation in Jeb Bush's yes, that's it. way of presentation that I think is honestly a little overdone or a little disconcerting. It, it seems like he should have thought about these answers mm-hmm. more in advance so that it doesn't, when, when the question, of course, naturally comes, it doesn't take... Yeah, he seems surprised. Yeah. Well, and I do a lot of consulting work where I'm talking to people like, like you should, in any situation, uh, think about three questions someone would naturally ask, and you need to know what the answers are to those three questions. And mm. it, it does at times seem, and I thought this when I was watching Jeb Bush in the first race, just like overthinking the answers. Like, I, I, I'm pretty sure you know the answer to this question. You don't have to pause as thoughtfully mm-hmm. in between some of these phrases. Um, and again, there are even studies that show that words per minute, people perceive you know you as more intelligent if you use w- more words per minute than uh, you know someone else. And that, that was true like for John F. Kennedy, who was one of the fastest you know, speaking presidents yeah. in U.S. history. Uh, so over-pausing and this kind of thing, it, it can actually cause some hazards. And even though it makes you look thoughtful, and careful, and I, and I do think there are certain, lots of situations that warrant that. Right. But for these candidates, uh, in many instances, I think these questions are fairly predictable. And, and like I said, a lot of times they even have the option of just saying, like, look, I'd rather talk about this, and they go right down the road they want to mm-hmm. talk about. It should be very, you know, uh, direct in the language and uh, the speed of delivery. Well, and you see that with, like, Senator Cruz uh, seems a little more kind of direct, Versus uh-huh. a Ben Carson seems a little bit more thoughtful, pensive. Um, do, do you sense and 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 maybe I mean it seems like um, the politicians have a they almost are playing by a different rule than kind of the anti-establishment people. And is there an advantage right now um, in in debate to be almost less of a politician and just more of a freewheeler? 
Oh, I, I absolutely agree with the premise of what you're asking. That, that that is that is the huge dynamic that's going on. That's what I was saying. Like even I think with Bernie Sanders, there's a lot of that. Yeah. I think that if you have a statement against you know the inside the Beltway, then you you are given a lot of uh, extra power rhetorically by the audience. And I, and that that is not an unusual dynamic in American politics. But what I what I'm trying to say is that. It is accentuated here in, in, in 2015. We, we're dealing with a very unique, strong dynamic of that. And I think that's where I, th- I think people are having a hard time interpreting what's going on right now. It's like we just haven't had a cycle, I would say, in about 60 to 70 years that matches the dynamic of populism and rejecting the establishment as much as we have right now. Yeah. Yeah, so true. Um, you, I know, too, Dr. Ben Voth, you are an expert in trying to to kind of relieve the stress by using some humor, some comedy, or mm-hmm. some humor in the political realm. I want to hear what you think about Hillary Clinton's um, Snapchat comment, uh, the comment where she basically— the server? Yeah. Well, and like, like uh, some of you know that I now have a new Snapchat. Um, I, I'm now on Snapchat, a social media tool, and the neat thing about Snapchat is it automatically erases your messages. And she so she made this joke, and it it was just kind of it was very ill, I think received. Yeah, right. And I I I was all I thought you were I hadn't actually heard that one, but I I thought you were alluding to there was another one where she said something in Iowa about using a cloth. Oh yeah, to no, there's an yeah the server. Mm-hmm. And I I have to admit I think that that particular and again humor is very hard to predict I have sure. to admit, it's very hard to predict it is very useful and can be very powerful but i have to admit i think the, the plays that i've seen from hillary clinton lately on this server thing seem um i don't know how to describe it exactly it did they seem kind of flippant and yeah. seem uh not serious about the underlying yeah charge. she's out of and tune right point of contempt to say you know, I, I'm I'm above this. You're, I'm just I'm just not going to answer yeah. for this. Yeah. And that, I think that's a, that's I think unsettling. So it's very hard to predict humor, but I do agree. I think it's very strategic. I think I do think, and it honestly surprised me a little bit. I thought Ben Carson used it very oh, effectively. He was perfect, wasn't he? His yeah. uh, debate performance, and I, and I think that was a big part of what helped him. Because I, I thought, like you were saying earlier, I thought he was almost over pausing in the debate, uh-huh. like you were pointing out earlier. But then at the end, the way he, he really oh. did that brain surgery joke, like, that's a very good way to implement that populist outrage yeah. argument in a humorous yeah. way. But I think what Hillary's doing is setting more of the reverse, kind of an inverse elite to uh, you, you don't need to know uh, what's going on here dynamic, which is not the dynamic she wants to be striking. Right. Like. No, right. Yeah. And you – I mean it, it kind of – that's, I guess, the neat thing about communication, and I guess the powerful thing about communication is, uh, I guess this was Paul Watzlewick that said, you cannot, one cannot not communicate. So exactly. in whatever you're saying, like, like for example, uh, Trump's diss on, um, he made that joke about the woman, oh, what's her name? The, oh, Rosie O'Donnell. Rosie or? O'Donnell, yeah. So he completely disses Rosie O'Donnell, um, which made... Half of the world probably laugh, I guess. Um, but then, but but it actually it it shows his hand, right? It shows his inherent bias, and and Hillary was showing her bias that she's not sure this is a big deal yet. It's it's you cannot not communicate. Right, right. Everything, and I always stress that to students. I always say the paint on the walls is saying something. 
you know, and I, I, I point out, like, when I'm in the lecture, I'm like, look, this dull paint, it's trying to make you focus on me, the lecturer, instead of putting up a mural in here that would be distracting you. Everything is communicating. Mm. And so we, we want to be constantly attentive, you know, not paranoid, but always trying to refine our communication techniques. Like we saw that with uh, President Obama and the Romney it's who shook whose hand, who was more aggressive in the handshake. I mean, all of the stuff, even getting uh-huh. on the stage, was saying something. When you look at it, who who are you most impressed with in their debate style and their debate abilities of the 1617 GOP candidates? Well, I have to admit, and, I, and again, it might be biased because I love debate training so much, but I do think the debate training and background of Ted Cruz shows. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's really, I think he's, He's very strong while at the same time measured. And that's a very difficult dynamic, which where, on the other hand, you know, Trump just seems to be, you know, steamrolling the whole yeah. thing. But I think, I think Cruz has the, the best ability, debate dynamic yeah. skills. And that seems, and that seems very apparent. And I think the main weakness, and it wasn't something I think he could control, but there was just a large period of time where he was not asked a question mm-hmm. in that, in that first debate. And, so, but whenever he was asked a question, he was very strong at being able to rebut either what someone else said or the premise of a question. So I, I thought that that yeah. was pretty strong. What do you think of Carly Fiorina? She seems oh my very goodness. skilled. I think she just knocked it out of the park yeah. in that first debate. I think she definitely clearly helped herself a huge amount. And I think she's a really powerful dynamic in the election because she is both a counterpoint to Donald Trump mm-hmm. and also a counterpoint to Hillary Clinton. Yeah. And, and in that respect... Uh, she's got a lot of potential rhetorical avenues. And so um, I was reading something yesterday, and I was a little nervous that apparently the way the next debate in September is set up is that kind of favors some of the early polls, and she still might not make oh. the top cut, which I think would be unfortunate totally. because she clearly proved herself in that first debate to be yeah, really, really good at um, debating. I think. Yeah, I'd love to see how she handles you know, the other guys. I'd love to see her next to Trump and Bush mm-hmm. and, and Cruz. Hey, as we wrap this up, um, what would you say, what should we be looking for in the next debate? What should we really try to discern um, as, and, as an essential um, takeaway in this next debate? What is the key for us to, to be able to pick a leader and not just be played by their verbal skill set? Well, I, I do hope, as I was saying earlier, that, that the public will try to reach beyond the dynamic, which is still an interesting one, about the candidate versus the journalist. I mean, there's, there's going to always be that, at least it looks like for now, where there's this journalist moderator, and then they, they kind of are going to... But what do they have vis-a-vis one another? Like, compared to another candidate, what, what do they do? Um, and also to try to hear them in a way that says... What would be the consequent policy that would be adopted if this person were elected? I mean, obviously, I think that is the germane question. Um, and, it, and it has to be beyond, hey, I, I like how they sound, which, you know, we all do that with every form of communication. But what am I potentially electing this person to be? But uh, there, there should hopefully be some sort of substantive engagement by the public of what policies would uh, this person enact? How would... Uh, government change. And, that, and that's a very hard question because a lot of the public, especially with the government, it doesn't seem to change. It doesn't seem to work. But 
what could one envision from the leadership of any of these candidates? Hopefully, you know, people will, will focus on that, you know, as the debate allows. Yeah, no, wonderful, wonderful insight. Well, Dr. Ben Vaugh, thank you so much for uh, helping us understand a little bit more what's going on in this whole thing. Again, Dr. Voth is the Director of Debate and Advisor to the Bush Institute and Associate Professor at SMU. Great, great stuff. Um, isn't it? It's just there's so much going on. And certain candidates, if you notice, they're able to kind of drive that wedge in there. They're playing against the anti-establishment, against the establishment, I mean. It's uh, it's pretty it's pretty incredible that democracy actually works when you think of how complicated each election is. We'll take a break, folks. Stick with us. We'll be right back. Continue the discussion. Trying to find the good in the world. Stick with us. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. You know, um, the funny thing about Donald Trump, if we're going to stay on the Trumpster, another poll shows that Donald Trump is way ahead in the Republican pack. A CNN survey gives him support of 24% of the GOP voters, with the nearest rival, Jeb Bush, at 13%. But an interesting dynamic to the whole thing that The Hill is reporting um, is that the... He's winning in the polls, but Donald is not winning with the book, the bookies, right? The Irish betting site, uh, Patty Power, has Bush as the clear GOP favorite with odds of six to four. Um, uh, Then comes Scott Walker, four to one, followed by Trump, nine to two. For the record, if you dropped 100 bucks on Hillary Clinton to win the Democratic nomination, the payoff would be a measly, measly 20 bucks. And uh, in the general election, she has the best odds of winning. She's even uh, better than Bush at 10 to 3. So it's an interesting little dynamic where you can win the, you know, I guess the the poll. But the, the people that are actually putting money on the whole event, they're not betting on him. So what is it that actually is going to turn you. I want you as a listener to be thinking, you you know Donald's good at what we're calling the shaggy dog, you know, approach. The shaggy dog is where somebody gets in there, and, and this might simply be Donald has too much media experience, and he knows that in the average story or interview with Donald Trump, you know, KSL or CNN or some of these big national stations, they are going to give you about an eight-minute interview, maybe, at the very most. So Donald knows if he tells a really long-winded story for, say, four minutes, you can only ask two questions. That's the shaggy dog story. That you got a lot of hair, a lot of stuff we got to sort through, a few knots, a few burrs in the hair. We got a bunch of stuff you got to comb through. And, you know, four or five inches in there, there's a dog. Not saying he's a dog, but kind of. Um, in the end, it's it's an interesting thing. Do you buy that? And not even just not even just Donald. I mean, I don't want to beat up Donald. This is every politician. You know, you can see them at times just basically filibustering an interview, and you see it everywhere. 
You see it on every topic. Are you getting tired of it? Are you starting to get frustrated by just media in general that they might set the the ideas, they set the agenda? Anyway, it's interesting as we got into some of the background on what's really going on with Dr. Uh, Ben Voth, people, there is a backlash against the establishment. People are tired of it. They're tired of the politicians. Seems like they're tired of government. They're tired of the divisiveness. They're tired of the media. And ironically, 24 million people watched the Fox debates. Apparently 60 million will watch the CNN debates. So folks, if you're tired of it, Why do you keep watching? Well, it's kind of like an accident. And I'm driving by and I just need to watch and see if I can see some blood and gore. Folks, we are some sick people, aren't we? Anyway, it's called politics. (laughs) Don't be too depressed. Uh, We hope on the show we can give you some insight. And we make fun of it. And honestly, you know, I'm waiting to be wowed by somebody. I'm waiting to have one of these politicians wow me. So far... I'm not easily uh, wowed yet, but I I did like Ben Carson's joke about brain surgery. He won it right there for me. Okay, we're going to take a break. Hour number one, folks, of the Matt Townsend Show. It's in the bank. You can go find it on podcasts, on blog, or on, uh, what's it called? Podcast, iTunes, tune uh, tune in. You can go to byuradio.org, look it up, send it to your friends. Anyway, great insight. We'll take a break when we come back. A whole new hour, new ideas. New tools. In fact, next hour, we're going to be talking about how your genetics, your genes, your parenting, how they all impact addiction and addictive personalities. Stick with us, folks. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you see the good in the world right here on BYU Radio. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to the show. Dr. Matt here, your coach, your guide on this side. You know, you can't always afford a life coach. So instead, listen to the radio right here. Or come work for you, and come it's free. work for me for free. We just glean everything you say. Yeah, is that it? Just it just soaks in. You know what? It's funny. I don't sense a lot of people just gleaning what I'm saying. <laughs> I feel like everyone's ignoring me. Uh. It's so rude. Hey, great news today. Holy cow. Go get your Twinkies. Eat all the food you want. Because apparently they have found uh, in the obesity gene. That, remember they found an obesity gene a few years ago. And now what they're finding out is you can turn the switch on and off for obesity. Just turn it on and off. Mine apparently stuck on. But check this out. Uh, Researchers at Harvard and MIT have made a major breakthrough studying what's called the FTO, obesity gene. The gene was leaked to obesity years ago. And scientists have now figured out how it works. Basically, what the gene does is it decides if you're going to store fat which could cause obesity, right? Or if you're going to burn fat as energy. And some people are born with the gene in the storage position, which means they're just going to keep a lot of the weight on, 
while some others are born with the gene in the burning position, so they just burn calories like crazy. Those are the ones that you hate. Those little burner people. Oh, burner people. (laughs) Those are the ones that are out running on the side of the road, and you're thinking, I kind of want to hit them. (laughs) Not that you would, but you're like, look at that skinny little FTO gene burner. (laughs) Um, The cool thing they're finding out, though, these genes, if you have a faulty version that doesn't kind of work appropriately and doesn't work right, it just kind of keeps storage going, then um, that's handed down genetically. So parents hand that down. And it could be, they believe, a cure for obesity where they now can turn it on and off, which might simply be eventually we just give you a shot, give you a little gene pill that flips the switch, and then all of a sudden all you do is smell burnt fat. <laughs> can you over. imagine whoever comes up with that pill or comes Holy up with that? Holy cow. Would that be amazing? But tell me they're not running on oh, that. They're racing. Time. They are racing to get that one. But they also say it'll still take quite a while because they've got a lot of testing. Interesting thing about this, the gene affects significantly more whites than blacks. That's interesting. Only 5% of the black population. So we just discovered this, but do we know how much it actually affects our metabolism? Well, we don't, but we do know, like, if only 5% of the black population have the gene, then there are obviously other genetic issues going on. Sure. Eating too much food. Yeah. Well, and yep. some of it could, yeah. And the, the interesting thing, they don't know exactly what percentage, they didn't report that, but it's going to take a while. Mm-hmm. So... Uh, so Despite maybe, that, you still need to eat a good diet. I mean, what? Yeah, you you're can't such have... a wet blanket, <laughs> Kathy. <laughs> Sorry, there's a pill on the horizon that will turn. So you, let me ask you this: If you could have that pill and you could eat all the food you wanted, would mm. you really change what, how you eat? Would I? Yeah. No. Yeah. Let me think. Yeah. No. Hold on. Let me think. Of <laughs> no, I wouldn't because I already eat what I want. Yeah. So get off my back. No, but um, what, what's interesting is for all these people that are like, yeah, I can hardly wait for that pill to come out. You may not have the gene. Right. So it may so, not help you at yeah, all. So you yeah. might still have to just exercise. Yeah. Darn it. <laughs> it's a hard deal. Life. But, you know, we're getting all of a sudden a little switch. Like we talked about the brains. We're, we're producing yeah. brains in Petri dishes yeah. now. Amazing. This is going to be crazy. Someday you're just going to actually be able to say, you know what? I don't want these genes. Mm-hmm. Like, you like if your father's on, bald and you don't want to be bald or whatever, I don't want to be bald. So, okay. So just give me a shot and, mm-hmm. and that will turn on the hair gene. Won't that be great? Or you'll just like <laughs> go to a store and you're like, it's like you'll pick out a pair of jeans. Mm-hmm. And you'll just literally say, I'll take, yeah, those in a size two. And but see, just, that's what's scary too is people, uh, you know, trying to make sure they have the, the perfect, smartest children, yeah. you know, and, and the way they're doing yeah. that genetic wise, that's, that's scary. With your yeah. employees or your kids buy a new brain. Mm. No, but don't, I mean, seriously, do you not have somebody you're like, okay, I want to get them a new brain? Because oh, it's <laughs> not working. Fuck. It's not working at all. There are several people Did I you hear mention, about but I will not. There are some burglars, some thieves who broke into a shop in Germany, opened 1,200 bottles of beer. Mm. They just opened the beer bottles, but they left all the beer pretty much untouched, and they just took the caps. They All they wanted were the, the metal steel bottle caps. So they're saying they need, they're the ones that need new brains? Well, these are the ones why? that need new brains. Uh-huh. Yeah, but they believe the thieves were trying to win prizes offered through a brewery promotion. And the, bo- got the most caps? The, yeah, the bottle caps um, had tokens printed code. on them with some entitling the holder to tools and speakers. So these guys Tools. wasted 
thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars of beer just to go get some speakers. Did they know if it was teenagers <laughs> that, or was it adults? Did they? they I think it was adults it? that probably had oh, something gosh. to do with beer, mm-hmm. <laughs> and the two didn't mix very well. That's why some people just need brains. Go buy some speakers <laughs> on your own. Goodness. Anyway, it's a crazy world. So let's uh, let's go to Kathy. Find out what else is happening around the world. Good morning, everyone. Protests broke out in St. Louis last night after an 18-year-old black man was killed by police. Officials say police were serving a search warrant on a home when the man fled, then turned and pointed a handgun at the officers. Guns and cocaine were found in that home. Police used tear gas to clear a street of protesters where nine people were arrested. Former subway pitchman Jared Fogle was in court yesterday, charged with distribution of child pornography and engaging in illicit sexual conduct with a minor. According to prosecutors, Fogel used used business trips to New York to seek child prostitutes, some as young as 14. As part of a plea agreement, Fogel will pay $1.4 million in restitution to 14 minor victims and is required to register as a sex offender. Here's U.S. Attorney Josh Minkler. Let's call this what it is. This is about using wealth, status, and secrecy to illegally exploit children. The 37-year-old Fogel could receive up to 12 and a half years in prison. Three firefighters were killed in north-central Washington yesterday, and four others injured one of those critically. The blaze they were fighting suddenly shifted due to high winds and were trapped in their vehicle. South King Fire Assistant Chief Chuck Collar spoke about the tragedy. It's horrible. It's devastating. It's devastating. We had a horrible day today, and now we have to go out and still do what we are trained to do. 4,000 homes have been evacuated in that area. The blaze is nearly one of 100 fires burning in the West. Tom Brady and the NFL were unable to reach an agreement again yesterday during an appeal hearing about Deflategate. U.S. District Judge Richard Berman has told both sides to work things out before the end of the month. If not, the judge will issue a ruling in the case. Both Brady and NFL Commissioner Roger Goodell will be required to attend the next hearing, which is scheduled for August 31st. Former NFL quarterback Eric Crane Kramer survived an apparent suicide attempt this week when he shot himself at a California motel. Kramer's ex-wife said she believes the attempt was the result of brain damage from playing football. Police say Kramer's injury was non-life-threatening. The 50-year-old played for four different NFL teams. And Matt, we're talking about the obesity gene and all this fun stuff. What does the body of an ideal woman look like? Don't answer that question right now. Got me in trouble. (laughs) A recent project called Perception of Perfection uh-huh. was started, and they asked 18 designers from 18 different countries to Photoshop the same image. Did you see, I, I Did love you see this. that? Yeah, this is cool. The instruction was to retouch the photo to make the woman more attractive to the citizens of that particular country. So the idea was to explore perceptions of beauty around the world. Photos from China and Italy showed their women were super skinny. Mm-hmm. I mean, very skinny. Yeah, like sickly. Yeah, sickly skinny. While pictures from Colombia, Mexico, and Peru showed more voluptuous beauty with tiny waists and curvy hips. <laughs> when shown the photos, people estimated the weight of the ideal wi- woman at 5 foot 4 inches tall. The Chinese women were estimated to be the lightest at 102 pounds. Oh, my goodness. With Spain the heaviest at 153 pounds. By the way, 14 of the designers were women. Four of them were men. I thought yeah. that was fascinating really we'll, to see the difference. Oh, it was incredible. We'll post that on our, our Twitter page at, uh, Dr., oh, at Dr. Matt Show at Dr. Matt show. But it's one of the great comments about it was um, one thing you do notice is that how poorly people can 
um, Photoshop, Photoshop <laughs> across the country. Because yeah. some of these people, they just don't look right. No, they don't. So, <laughs> and, and yeah. it's, but apparently that's the ideal. That's, woman, the ideal, that's scary. Yeah. yeah. Uh-huh. Honestly, it, it was really, it's almost like breathtaking because you're thinking, oh, she looks ill. Yeah. It looked anorexic uh-huh. to the women from Italy and China. Yeah, very much so. And then the others were more curvy. Well, and, and then you're yeah, like, oh, interesting. That's yeah, cool. Yeah. Huh. Yeah. Why don't they do that with men? I would love to do that with men. That would be that would be an interesting. I could yeah. only imagine <laughs> what would come out of that. The ideal image of a man. Yeah. Ask your ask your ask your wife what that is. But isn't that tomorrow. it's it's a really weird thing because we are way caught up, aren't we? Oh, so much so. on the the female looks, but they really would never do one of those of the ideal look of a man mm-hmm. because it seems like what's really most attractive with men are more traits that aren't going to make it in a photo. Sh- like I like his humor. <laughs> And I, the dude makes some serious coin. He's got a sweet and spirit. He's got a very sweet spirit. His hair, <laughs> no hair, uh, gap tooth, whatever. But I, I would love to see a male version of it mm-hmm. and see if we parallel. Yeah, or, wouldn't that be interesting? Oh, interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Crazy stuff. Okay, go check it out on our Twitter page, at Dr. Matt Tweets. Hey, coming up, Dr. J.D. Higley is going to be joining us. A very interesting discussion about your genes And addiction, really the science of addiction. What are the biggest drivers that drive people to become addicted? You might be amazed. Some of it is genetic, but the genes a lot of times don't fire until environmentally we create the firing of it. And that could happen in our family situations. Fascinating discussion. Stick with us. Dr. J.D. Higley coming up on the uh, science behind addiction. Welcome back, everybody, to the Matt Townsend Show. Hey, you know, uh, have you ever felt like you were addicted to something? You know, I'm not talking, you know, the hard substances or whatever, but if you've ever been addicted to something, even if it's just benign, uh, do you even, do you know why you're more prone to be an addict to something? Are you possibly addicted to shopping or chocolate or even technology, that's an easy one to to fall prey to. Well, the science of addiction shows that while genes play a role, environment may play an even larger one. And uh, joining us today, Dr. J.D. Higley, professor of psychology at BYU, joins us to talk to us about how family, genes, and addiction kind of all could go together. Uh, Dr. Higley, thank you so much for joining us. Glad to be here. Hey, talk to us about this... um, this some of your research you've been doing. You've been doing this for quite a quite a while about uh, the research of addiction and and how our family and the environment, the roles that they, that those things play on our addiction. T- talk to us about what you've been learning. Well, my research is focused mainly uh, on mothers. When I left BYU, my uh, initial research was to look at the effects of mothers on developing. Uh, anxiety, impulsiveness, uh, and aggression. And it, it was just sort of a natural transition to ask the question, if, if mother's not around, uh, what happens uh, when it comes to uh, alcohol intake? Uh, there's, uh, what we studied uh, mainly, but uh, the principles we've studied probably apply to a number of different uh, addictions as well. It turned out that 
if the mother's not there, the rate of alcohol intake uh, increased considerably with with uh, subjects who, uh, if they would have been around their mothers drinking one to two drinks, which is the average for most uh, people, and just enough to get a little bit of an effect of it. But uh, these without mothers around turned out to drink uh, enormous quantities, uh, essentially drinking enough to become intoxicated uh, every day. Hmm. So mother's presence early in life uh, appears to have a mediating effect on the development of uh, addiction and, and uh, much of the brain is affected by not having her around. Wow, it's amazing. One person, did you see... Is there is there any um, research done on fathers? Well, I'm sure fathers could could substitute here. It just happened to be that uh, our research focused mainly on the mothers in, in our society. Despite them uh, talking about equal rights, mothers still do the predominant uh, care of infants. But fathers are certainly capable of that, and in many cases compensate for uh, absent mothers or poor mothering uh, when it comes to that. And so, from your research with mothers, you 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 you've already seen some impact that families or just the environment really is is a big driver on addiction. Uh, no question about it. One of the other interesting things in, uh, came out. Uh, we've been doing this research for about twenty five years, and we always noticed that there was a certain proportion that uh, they were teetotalers. Uh, they try alcohol, they drink a little bit, but then. Uh, they just weren't interested in uh, alcohol consumption. And on the other end of the spectrum was uh, even those that grew up with the best mothers and the best opportunities, there were still a few, about uh, 10 to 20 percent, that uh, would drink to intoxication on a regular basis. And we asked the question, is there a possibility that this might be mediated by genetic effects? And it turns out that that uh, be- would become one of the most important papers we published in uh, 2003. We found that you can have great mothers, but if you have a genetic background that puts you at risk, often the genes interact with the environment in such a way that uh, genes get expressed differently if mother's there or if she's absent. Huh. It's almost like mothers turn a switch on and then, or turn a switch off, depending on your perspective to induce or protect a a growing child from future alcohol abuse and alcoholism. So so let me make sure I get this straight, just kind of in layman's terms. The... um, the some people could be born with a gene, but having the gene may not necessarily trigger uh, if their mother is around versus um, if they if they aren't around. Precisely. Huh. There's a good deal of research. Uh, one of the more famous studies of this is uh, a group of, uh, of teens uh, from Florida that uh, uh, research outside our lab, but it's uh, very well to explain that effect. Uh, there is a gene that has uh, variations, in, uh, and uh, without getting too technical here, the gene is called a warrior gene because uh, Evidence in, from animal studies showed that they tend to be more aggressive and drink more alcohol. Well, it turned out that it not only affected the rates of aggression uh, on average, but if you look at uh, 
who joined gangs, and if you looked also at who carried guns within a gang, it was those that were exposed to the gang and those that were uh, had had uh, the gene as well were the ones that uh, were more likely to carry a gun within the gang or a weapon of some sort. And moreover, they were more likely to join the gang to begin with, which already pushes the gene a little bit further along. Interesting. As, as you go. So, so, so you could be born with a gene and then having a, a fairly stable environment, um, a family or a, just a, a safer environment may actually keep certain genes, aggressive genes, or even uh, alcohol, alcohol uh, or alcoholism genes, I guess, um, kind of keep them at bay until or so, so that's it really is then it's no longer the battle between nature and nurture. It's really saying it's now a, a big mix of our genes and the environment setting off genes or kind of mitigating genes. Yeah, and, and just to add to that, there, there we know of about seventeen thousand genes. We've identified over well over a hundred genes that affect uh, your addictions and uh, alcoholism. Wow! Some of those some of those protect you. Some of those make uh, the situation worse. But in many cases, being in the right environment, uh, the gene never gets expressed as a result of that. Uh, Which is why family life is important, right? It's why it's why probably. Historically, we've used it as societies for millennia have been using family as a resource to to create healthier people. Yeah, no question about it. If you look at latchkey children, they're they're really at high risk for a, a number of of uh, addictions, uh, for violence, and, and other sorts of things. But still, you know, there are kids who come out unscathed, yeah. uh, despite the fact they come home every day there, and that. Uh, so there's probably a protective and a, uh, a risk factor that goes along with it. To, to put it in a different way, the risk for alcoholism uh, from your genetic, from your genes is about 50% of, uh, of our predictive capability. If you look at BYU, what is the risk for alcoholism if you have those genes? Well, at BYU, pretty low, not yeah. 50%, that's for sure. On the other hand, if you uh, look at some place, uh, uh, city place in town, uh, somewhere where they have rows and rows of bars and you're working at a bar, well, being exposed to that alcohol every single day, their risk is probably going to be greater than that 50% uh, probability that we see. Even even though they have the same genes as a BYU student, it's it's not necessarily going to be expressed the same way sure. in environment. See, that is such an interesting idea, too, when you just think of sending your kids away to colleges. Um, BYU, for example, is always at the bottom of the uh, most, you know, sober, or to the top of the most sober school. And it's so if I have a 50% chance of of having, um, uh, of becoming addicted to alcohol, if if, if that's my odds, and and I'm never around it, that's an interesting benefit that's just, you know, because of, the environment I'm living in. I think that's true, and if you if you think about it from from a, a, a parental ex, uh, expectation, putting your child in an environment that is is protective, there are numerous other opportunities to do that as children are growing up, or the flip side of that, to give them the kind of 
challenges that they need to grow and develop based on those individual differences that mm. uh, you're seeing. Yeah. I mean, really, are, are we, where are we, um, Dr. Higley, in the research on addiction? Are we, are we getting pretty advanced in it? Do we understand it? Or are we just really barely starting to get into it? Well, with the discovery of the, uh, or I should say the discovery, with the sequencing of the human genome so that we know where all the genes are, it's allowed us now to identify literally hundreds of genes that are affecting uh, addictive properties. The challenge we face right now is what do those genes do and how do we then tailor make a treatment for somebody who is, is, uh, has a particular gene that's been expressed uh, because of the environment, because of uh, opportunities, say, uh, to be exposed to it. Hmm. That's powerful. So if, we, if we can somehow think about uh, risk as something that is on a continuum and think about ways then to tailor-make uh, prevention or treatment uh, based on those genes, that will be very exciting. But that's probably uh, a good five to ten years away. We do have some drugs that we know work better in people with <clears throat> with certain uh, genotypes or certain uh, genetic predispositions. So that that's an exciting finding. We we know, for example, uh, one of the genes that uh, my lab uh, characterized and was uh, one of the first to publish on was a, a gene that affects the serotonin system. That gene is uh, uh, is uh, probably the most studied now of. Uh, And and that's and that was about the anxiety. Is that was that your study about anxiety with ser- and serotonin? Correct. Uh, yeah, the effects of serotonin. Powerful. I mean, it, it really it's it's interesting. New research showing the the value of some what some would just think is an old traditional concept of you know families having mom and dad you know strong and in in the lives of other of their children. I mean, it's. It seems like that's old-fashioned, and it's so not. It's so essential. Let's let's take a break, come back, and continue our discussion here with uh, Professor Dr. J.D. Higley here from Brigham Young University, professor of psychology, and uh, come back, continue this discussion about addiction. I want to get into the role we as parents have in helping our kids with addictions and um, some of the things that we should do to even help detect if we have an addiction. Um, and, and, and a little earlier intervention as parents. Stick with us, folks. We'll be right back. This is the Matt Townsend Show right here on BYU Radio. everybody to the Matt Townsend show. We're talking today about addiction and you know, we've heard about the genes. You could have an addictive gene and now we're finding out, you know, there's hundreds out there, probably more as we continue to study and research this. But we're also finding out the impact of the family and the environment 
as as maybe a trigger that sets some of these genes off. Joining us uh, on the phone is Dr. J.D. Higley. He's a professor of um, psychology here at Brigham Young University and is uh, is a researcher and does a lot of experiments trying to figure out the addiction and also really how to to kind of um, start to understand better the approach, the environment, and and how to kind of uh, create a better opportunity for somebody to either not fall into the addictions uh, in in the first place or actually how to maybe pull us out once we're in. So again, Professor Higley, thank you so much for joining us. Great to have you here. Um, First of all, how do you know in the end – I mean, is it obvious that you have an addiction or what are the signs that your little thing, you know, that thing you like a lot is starting to become an actual addiction? Well, that's a great question. Having a beer every day may not necessarily be an indication that a person is alcoholic. Right. The reality is there's only a small segment of the population who actually develops uh, addictive uh, qualities and the environment they're they're developing in will dictate how that might get expressed. And the environment being how where they're raised, the schools, the friends they hang out with, family, everybody. Yes, in particular the early events of how how you treated growing up, how that brain gets wired. It, it's almost as if uh, God, evolution, however you want to think of this, said, you know, I've got this really complex brain. There's a genetic plan about how to put it together. But the subtleties of who you are, the the differences that are going to come out are going to be based on the treatment. So that as a as a neuron or a wire goes out to, to different parts of the brain, you, it will make contact, and if it's used, it stays there. If it's not used, it gets pruned and taken away. Hmm. It's almost as if evolution said. Let's make a brain that that is well done, well put together, and we really need somebody to finish it up after the genes express themselves. And hey, let's let's have moms. Moms are really there, designed to wire the brain. We, we think when we're holding our babies and we're reducing their crime, we think we're reducing their behavior, which is true. But really, what we're doing is sending our own signals to their brain to to change the brain in some way so that neurons uh, continue to function wow. or they get pruned and get taken out. And that's, that's, that's a really important finding because it indicates that mothers are important. Yeah. In this day and age where we talk about other things, uh, that one-on-one contact that reduces that arousal eventually allows a baby to develop the capacity to take those neurons now that have been developed and turn off their own anxiety, turn off their own fear, and make them at less risk for alcohol-mediated uh, uh, or anxiety-mediated alcohol uh, abuse. What a powerful idea. I mean, it is. It's like we – I guess sometimes we feel like we just – our kids are like an iPad, you know? They just come ready, wired, ready to go. You just boot it up, and there they are. But you're saying, really, it's like a blank iPad that needs to be wired and coded and – that's really the role of mother. Uh, the mother has a really powerful role at doing that encoding, that wiring. And based on that work, the the real uh, power of the iPad is it's either accentuated or it's it's impacted. Yeah. Or put another way, mother puts the apps on the iPad and determines which ones are going to function, which ones are not. Interesting. Or, uh, 
doesn't do that and lets uh, the child put them on, and then you're in trouble because uh, that brain needs that input in order to function right. Really, that is something that it seems like the parents, it's it's really one of our first jobs is to make sure we create the healthiest environment. And what's funny is we, it seems like as parents, a lot of us don't know what is healthy mental health. You know, we don't, if our child is a little anxious or has a little uh, anxious temperament as a child, and we had a guest on the other day that taught us about that, and just born with a little more anxious temperament, there are, you know, I can't remember the numbers, but I think it was like 50% of the people that are born with anxious temperament actually might eventually show an anxiety disorder, which means somewhere in there, there's a certain percentage that are finding other healthy ways to manage, or maybe even unhealthy ways, to manage their temperament. And really, that might be the role of parents, is finding healthier ways to to help our children grow. And if you consider, again, taking this uh, gene environment uh, approach, if you consider the, the risk that a, a child comes into the world with, it can be mediated by the experiences that we give them in the same way that we're talking about uh, how the culture does. If you take a child who has uh, uh, an anxious temperament, if it's a girl, they are much more likely to stay shy, uh, uneasy around people, whereas boys are, are more likely to outgrow that, to become a little more bold and more outgoing. If, if you look at that from an environmental perspective, it's socially acceptable for women to be a little coy, a little bit uh, uh, shy, uh, a little bit quiet, but for guys, uh, we really push them, go out, you know, mm-hmm. Go play soccer. Or go out uh, with the boys. Uh, I don't want to see you until you're you're finished playing for an hour after with them. And we we push our boys a little more to get out. That's of that. interesting. And, yeah. And that that is uh, Jerry Kagan, uh, who did uh, some of the original studies uh, with shyness in uh, infants, was able to show that uh, boys are more likely to make a change from shyness, but it's largely because of what the culture does uh, to push that around. Push them out there. Yeah. Should we just um, assume – I mean, in a way, genetically, we should just probably assume we are all uh, – could fall prey to an addiction, shouldn't we? I mean, just shouldn't we just assume genetically if there's that many genes out there that that kind of are contributing or attributed to a, an addiction, man, one of them's got to be in me. So I may as well just assume I got to be careful. Well, but I think we I think we can do better than that. I think we can actually say, gosh, if, if I have this family history, I'm at higher risk. Yeah. Maybe, maybe a drink or two for the average person is not going to be a big deal, but for me, for, for my family members, a drink or two can be life-destroying because yeah. eventually my brain says, man, that's great. Let's do that again. It's, uh, or it begins to look at pornography, and you know, the brain of a pornographer uh, a person addicted to pornography looks identical for all intents and purposes to that of a of the cocaine addict uh, when he sees his cocaine. Wow. A person who is addicted to pornography gets the same response in the brain at the side of pornography that uh, the cocaine addict gets to his uh, cocaine. So if, if the brain is that affected that much, and whether it's genetic or whether it's because of the choices that one has made, 
eventually the brain can simply get hijacked by that, that powerful reinforcement, that powerful sense of pleasure that we get from from uh, drugs and pornography or whatever else it might be. Yeah. When we, we have about a minute left, why don't you give us, what would you say as as we as parents are trying to just kind of deal with the potentials of addiction in our lives and our families, what would you say is the one thing that everybody in this country, if we could just do more of this, it would dramatically impact our ability to manage and to keep our family from falling into more addictive behaviors? Well, let, let, let me just emphasize, it's not just the genes. It's not just the environment. It's almost always the two interacting and Sometimes one is more powerful than the other, but uh, by and large, risk really is a, a gene environment interaction. Yeah. If you know that, then and you want to, as a family, protect your family, you consider both avenues there. You consider the risk, and for some children, it may be that they have to learn by experience, and for others, uh, we may say, well, the risk is so strong here that uh, we, we can do better than letting them learn by experience. But let's not forget, uh, those who need to learn by experience, uh, we've got to be there to give them the support when they discover that was a bad choice. It really is. um, I I think it's a powerful opportunity for all of us to just open our minds a little bit and recognize that it's a mix of the gene and and the environment and, and also the importance, as we've learned earlier, about being a father, being a mother, and and being involved in some of the most basic coding of our children. You got to be present. You got to you got to be there for them. And um, I really think that's powerful. So again, Dr. J.D. Higley, we so appreciate you from BYU's uh, Department of Psychology. Really great insight, and uh, we'll continue to. Uh, to try to do our best as parents, everybody, think about it. They're, these are your kids. Somebody's got to help, you know, load the apps on their on their minds and their brains, and that's got to be you. And if we can keep them safer, keep them away from the cliff. I mean, it sounds like it's just sheltering, but it's not. You can still be there and teach them the valuable lessons as well. They have to experience life, but they also don't have to go right off the cliff. Appreciate it. We're going to take a break, my friends. We'll be right back. Continue this discussion on the other side of the break. You're listening to The Matt Townsend Show right here on BYU Radio. Welcome back, friends, to The Matt Townsend Show. Um, Wow. When you think about addictions and your family, you know, it's one thing, I guess, to get the science of it all down. But there's the whole psychology of it. Right? How do you handle someone you love, you care about deeply, and they're now addicted and they're going off the deep end? It's such a it's such a difficult thing. And I think a lot of us we just don't know what to do. So some of us just walk away, right? We don't get involved. We uh we avoid the situation, we avoid the people. Others become really controlling. We, we get really strong. We start enforcing. We feel like a compelling need to enforce our values, our principles, you know. I think in the end, everybody has more guilt, some depression. You know, a lot of parents will sit there and feel like, oh, I'm such a loser. If I had been a better parent. So because the parents guilt, the parents shame, they don't – they might overreact. They might enable the addict. You have some people that just go into denial. 
it's a pretty common issue where we just pretend like it's not happening. And this all happens, right? And then along with it, we shame ourselves and it could be the mom and dad that have shame because they had been better parents or it could be the addict has shame because he can't even share. He can't even tell anybody he's got an addiction. So if you think about it, one addiction with some denial and some shame and some guilt and some blame, it's, it's really the perfect combination for chaos in a family. And everybody's got addiction somewhere in your family, don't you? Have you not seen it? Whether it's drugs or just spending or um, other addictive behaviors, pornography use, shopping, it can be everywhere. And the hard part, too, is most of us really aren't pros at this. So if you've ever dealt with a true addict, you, you usually get played a lot. And eventually you get tired of being played and all this, these, these emotions come in. So if we're going to try to improve our lives with, uh, with addiction in our family or somebody that's an addict in the family, how do we not push them away, run them away, scare them away while still loving them and still having boundaries, right? That's probably one of, I think, the most difficult tasks we have as a human being. How do we handle people that are doing things that we feel are inappropriate or self-destructive, and they're doing it out of an addiction. Now, some people don't buy the idea that an addiction is a mental health issue, right? They don't believe it's a psychological issue. A lot of people just believe it's it's just a byproduct of a a person that lacks character. Because if you had enough integrity, you would just not be addicted. And honestly, wrong. I mean, definitely character could be a part of some of the addictive issues and behaviors. But if somebody is truly addicted to a drug and they're lying to you, it's probably no longer a character issue, right? It's a survival issue in their head. Their brain thinks they need more drug to survive. So they're just – they'll do whatever it takes. They're just using their natural faculties. Well, they just need more integrity. Well, sure. Well, so do we as parents. So one of the things, I guess, as as we get into trying to figure out how we should handle it, I I think first and foremost, I would just simply say you got to find love. There has to be – if you don't start the process of handling an addict from a really clear statement and sense that you love them and that you care about them, you're going to be angry because they're doing something you don't want. You're going to be angry because you're afraid. It's going to feel like anger to you. You're going to want to be aggressive to try to stop it. But if you send aggressiveness to somebody that's that's in the throes of addiction, they're going to just feel rejection. So I would just say, first and foremost, we got to find a way to love them unconditionally. And it doesn't mean I have to have you around. It doesn't mean I can't be strong, you know, but I want first and foremost that my love is there. I'd keep reinforcing it. I'd keep saying it. They may not hear it. They're still going to manipulate it on you, and they're still going to hold it against you when you don't give them what they want. But don't always equate love to results. Just equate love to that you feel love and you're going to keep expressing love. When you're dealing with an addict, they may not understand love at all anyway, right? They're going to misconstrue it. But you shouldn't not love. The minute you no longer are feeling 
the love, you are – that's probably where you're going to start creating other problems for yourself because now you – look look what I've turned into. My addictive child has made me turn into this ugly, horrible person. And I know that's easy to say that you got to do, but in, in reality, I don't – where else do you go, right? You can go get professional help and you're still going to need to – Find the love for this person. So it might be good to just go back, think back. Why, are, why is this person so important to you? Don't be fearful. Don't just – don't f- turn it into something you can't handle. Just say they, they're my child. I love them. I want what's best for them. And then add the word, just simply the word and. And this, uh, this behavior can't continue. This behavior, I need to do what I can do. So I can love someone fully and – I need to do something to help. Just by adding the word and, you don't have to dichotomize your love or their treatment. So I love them fully and I need to do what I can do. And some things that you could do is I would go get as I'd go get help. And I would get professional help from somebody that is a professional in addictive behavior and addict um, and rehab. Because there's a complete difference between the traditional therapist that just does everything and the one that works with addicts all day. And it's so amazing to talk to them because when you talk to somebody that works with addicts all day, they don't take any crud and they don't believe really anything. So you, you need somebody that's stronger than you to deal with the addictive part of this. And I would play hardball and I would, I would love my child and we're going to go talk to this doctor or you're going to have to d- leave. I'd play hardball. Well, I know, but is li- having someone leave when you love them, is that love? Yeah, if it's addiction. People need you to play hardball at times. And if you can't play it naturally, then get people that can. Get professionals that are actually in the know and figure it out. Another thing I would just suggest highly is recognize that the problem is not usually the addiction. The problem is something they're using the, medis- the, the medical benefits of the addiction for. What are they trying to mask? So there's a deeper issue there. Get somebody that can get down to that deeper issue. And don't just try to get help. Keep getting help until you get the help that does something, Right? I'm so tired of people saying, yeah, we tried therapy. didn't work. Well, you tried one version with one person in one moment. You didn't try therapy. There's 5,000 other therapeutic methods. Keep trying. Your goal here is not to say you try. Your goal, tried. Your goal here is to say we, we created some change. And I think if you were aggressive and just kept finding the next expert – well, how much money do I throw after this? You know what? I don't know. That's where your gift, your revelation, your ideas of what you have to do has to come into play. Folks, it's really one of the toughest things we deal with. And it's going to have to be balanced with love and action and real aggressive action because you can't dawdle, right? You can't wait around. You can't waste time on this. Anyway, tough stuff. That's the coach's corner. I, I really, I mean, I wish there was easier answers, right? This is the, the dark side of our lives at times. We'll take a break, my friends. When we come back, we got one more hour of the Matt Townsend Show. Boy, next hour, are you a giver or a taker? What do you think? And what motivates you, giving to people or getting things from people? We're going to get into that next hour with Pamela Paresky. Stick with us, folks. This is the Matt Townsend Show.
This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good morning, friends. Welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt here, your coach, your guide on the side. Happy Lemonade Day. If you're a lemonade drinker, today is your day. Also, if you like... Oh, did you guys hear that? That must be the bubbly lemonade. Carbonated lemonade. That sounded really good, though. Uh, Do you have a chocolate pecan pie day sound? Let's pull up a... Just really quickly, I want you to just give me a chocolate pecan pie day sound. Okay. An angel. This is the closest thing I had. I I have crickets and, and gasps, but yeah. Okay, well, that was a good... So you have a lemonade day sound? Let's hear what that yeah. is. <sighs> that sounds like... Plop, plop, fizz, fizz. Oh, what a relief it is. Hey, August 20th, also Chocolate Pecan Pie Day, which has this sound. Also the exact same sound as an angel getting its wings, <laughs> which is so great. And, of course, National Radio Day. Do you have a sound for that? Be creative. The children love National Radio Day. It's your job. Come on, Mike. It's your job. National Radio Day. I'm excited. It's, I love National Radio Day. It's a great day. Uh, we always like to take the kids out. We make a day of National Radio Day. <laughs> we bring them on a tour of the studios. We go eat donuts in the shape of radio microphones. We do the whole thing. It's tons of fun. Hey, uh, interesting day um, and topic we've got coming up. <laughs> Pamela Paresky is going to be joining us, and she is um, an expert, a psychologist, and the director of the Aspen Center for Human Development, she's going to be talking about the, the question, are you a giver or a taker? What motivates you the most in life, giving or taking? Kathy, how about you? Do you like, are you more enjoying of the gift, receiving it, or giving it? Giving by far. Really? I, I'm not a, I don't know if I'm saying, I'm not a good receiver. I'd prefer, yeah, I don't like the attention of, yeah. Me opening it and saying thanks. I'd rather give it to somebody and see their happiness for sure. That's really cool. How about you, Miguel? You know, if it's a really thoughtful gift, if it's something that I've been wanting, uh, it's really, uh, really feels good and you I like get emotional. Receiving. Yeah, but I, I do like giving more. Do you? you know? Yeah, it's the darndest thing. I just like receiving. <laughs> do you? See, we just, hate like my father. Yeah, we went to Christmas. We hate giving gifts because he. Opens it. Oh, thanks. And that's it. And he's like, yeah. well, what? Wait. No, you know what? The, What's your real feeling? He just does. He doesn't like to get. He would prefer yeah. to give. I, I actually do. I'd rather give. But let me give you the secret to receiving a gift. Okay. So you don't have that awkward moment okay. of like, thanks. That oh, was yeah, great. great. What you do when they hand it to you, you just grab it, you giggle, <laughs> and you run away. Mm-hmm. You don't open it in no, front of them. You run away and you hide in the bathroom and you open it. Because what, if it's bad, you won't have yeah. to... Then there's no reaction. Totally disappointed? Okay. Well, how do you fake it, though, if you get a gift that you really don't like? What do you... What do you how do, thank I, you for the socks. Socks. I love it. No, I, you know, I fake it all it's day great. on the radio show. So I'm really good at this faking thing. It's... Um, no, I just say, oh, thanks. Thanks a lot. That's great. Yeah. I will wear those. Definitely. <laughs> I will place those socks on my feet. 
Thanks, honey. Worst gift I ever received, you guys think of yours, mm. nose hair clippers. Yeah, that's probably not a good one. I got mine. Totally rude. What, Miguel? You remember the shake weight? Oh, yeah. I've got four so of you them. You got a shake weight? Legitimately. Yeah. It was, yeah. But, my... dude, you've got seriously big arms because of it. <laughs> I know. It's really, uh, yeah, I broke shake it. Shake weight. I can't think of a bad gift. I can't. Well, we, you've only been went, working what? here a little while. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. We've got a lot of okay. bad stuff coming. Maybe something just, will be coming. Oh, wait. something's coming. You can't think of okay. one bad thing? I can't. I really can't. See, but that's because you're just... a saint. No, I'm not, but... Come on, no, think, like, a, think like the devil. I cannot think of one that I went, oh my heck, I can't believe you gave that to I me. I don't think she's bad no. at receiving gifts. Look at no. this. <sighs> yeah, I, I, uh, I'm not a good, I'm not a good uh, getter. We'll find I'm out. A giver. So- sounds like you are if you can't think of a bad gift. Yeah, for sure. You're yeah. very That's receptive. Good. Thank you. Thank Did you guys you. hear about the jewelry thief that um, wearing, he got caught wearing di- rhinestone diamonds, big diamonds that he had stolen. And a woman recovering from surgery at a rehab center recognized the familiar face. Her nurse's aide from an assisted living facility. He stole $8,000 worth of her bling and then went AWOL. So the cops went looking for him and they found him and they found him wearing the studs, the jewelry. Right? So like in the he, lineup. He, you say a uh-huh. he? Okay. But in the lineup, busted. I mean, oh no, it was, it was Candace was the female, okay. the the one that was identified as a woman. But in the lineup, she was wearing the bling, the bling. Not smart. I mean, that's the easiest <laughs> way to pick someone out. Yeah, that's a dead giveaway. I think right it's there. the one yeah. wearing my blouse <laughs> and my mother's heirloom necklace that says Jazzy on it. Yeah, that's her. I'm pretty sure. And those diamonds, I think, are. Oh yeah, yeah and those, those spandex mine. pants. Those are mine too. <laughs> Can you? Oh, and Not I need smart. my flats. Yeah, I need. Isn't that crazy? Not smart. I mean, if you're going to steal something, for heaven's sakes. Hide it. Hide it for at least a month, then, then wear, wear it. Then wear it. Man! What was she thinking? Do I have to do everything? Come on. That's crazy. <laughs> oh, come on! There you go. Hey, let's go to Kathy find out what's going on in the headlines around the country. Three firefighters were killed in north-central Washington yesterday when the blaze they were fighting suddenly shifted and they were trapped in their vehicle. Four others were injured, one critically. All residents there were ordered to evacuate. County Sheriff Frank Rogers spoke about the firefighters. It's horrible. It's devastating. It's devastating. We had a horrible day today, and now we have to go out and still do what we are trained to do. The blaze is one of nearly 100 fires burning throughout the West. A 4.2 magnitude earthquake shook southern Colorado late last night. According to the U.S. Geological Survey Office, the quake hit 23 miles west of Trinidad. No word on damage or injuries. An 18-year-old black man was shot and killed in St. Louis yesterday. Police were serving a search warrant on a home when the man fled. When police told him to stop, he allegedly turned and pointed a handgun at the officers who shot him. The shooting sparked protests in the area last night. Nine people there were arrested. Former subway pitchman Jared Fogle was in court yesterday, charged with distribution of child pornography and having sex with a minor. Fogle reportedly admitted to participating participating in a five-year criminal scheme to exploit children. As part of the plea agreement made in court, Fogle will pay $1.4 million in restitution to the victims and is required to register as a sex offender. Here's U.S. Attorney Josh Minkler. Let's call this what it is. This is about using wealth, status, and secrecy to illegally exploit children. 
The 37-year-old Fogel could receive up to 12 and a half years in prison. Republicans are ramping up opposition to the Iran nuclear deal after revelations of a secret side agreement was discovered involving Iranian inspections. The deal reportedly allows Tehran to use its own inspectors to investigate a site the country is accused of using to develop nuclear arms. GOP presidential Kent contender Jeb Bush spoke about the deal. Mullahs don't go quietly into the night. The idea that you're going to change their behavior by giving them everything they want and getting nothing in return to speak of, I think is the wrong approach. And I think the deal should be killed. Republicans and a few Democrats are trying to stop the historic agreement while President Obama pledges to veto any vote against it. Former President Jimmy Carter said today the cancer spreading through his body is a form of melanoma. Doctors have have not determined where the cancer originated, but they do know the cancer has spread to his liver and brain. Carter will begin, begin radiation this afternoon. And President Obama recently released his music playlist on Spotify, Matt, and I know you're going to start writing this mm-hmm. down Let as me I get speak. My pen. Okay, you got it? Okay. Yeah. Your paper? Yeah, okay. Here Here are a few of his 40 faves that he released. So by day, Uh the president likes Live It Up by the Isley Brothers. Wow. Rock Steady by Aretha Franklin and Mm. Bob Marley's So Mm -hmm. Much Trouble in the World. Isn't that true? At night, he listens to songs like My Favorite Things by John Coltrane, Help Me by Joni Mitchell, and The Best is Yet to Come, sung by... Uh, Bee Gees. Frank Sinatra. <laughs> I have no idea. Frank Sinatra. Oh, is that Frank Sinatra? Yeah. What, I do like the Bee Gees, though. But have you heard the Bee Gees version of, of that song? Oh, of the fantastic. best, I have never heard yes. him sing that, but I'll look that up. Worth looking up. Yeah. Uh, interesting. Mm-hmm. But really, I mean, he's he's got great taste, and he's got a – have you ever heard him sing? I did hear him sing. sing. We well, sang at the, yeah. at the funeral, right, down in, in, uh-huh. in uh, South Carolina, I believe. He did sing there. That yeah. was beautiful. Amazing, Amazing Grace. Grace. Yeah. That was. I was really surprised. I mean, what, what, what a good voice he had. Would you just dare stand up there and sing? Never. Never. I mean, dance I for sure. I have dreamed sometimes. Have you ever – you say dreamed or dreamt. Have I, you ever, I dreamt? always say done dreamt. Have you done dreamt yourself done singing in church or something? Yeah. It was a, it was a nightmare. It was, it was a nightmare. I've yeah. dreamt – dreamed. I've done dreamt that before. Yeah, it didn't turn out very well. Yeah. So, yeah, You know, I that's actually that. – just as a psychologist, let me help you with that. If, <laughs> Don't do it. <laughs> if you want to know if it's dream versus dreamt, I have a dream to become a radio producer. Uh-huh. I dreamt that I was a radio producer. Okay. That's so, what I say. So yeah. I dreamt I sang in church. Yes. And, and, and everybody left. And so it didn't turn out okay, well. See, so that is the same dream as anyone that dreamt or done dreamt about um, walking around – you know, like naked, naked at the airport. And, or you go to school and you I've don't had that have that Yeah. <laughs> like I've gotten to school. Yeah, I didn't. Yeah. I forgot my something. I don't See, know. those are just signs something. that your subconscious says you're not prepared. Is that it? You're not. That, pre- you, that you're not prepared. Or that would See, be. See, that's why that I work here to glean these things from you. Mm-hmm. That is great advice. I actually just made that up. <laughs> I have no idea what that means. <laughs> but it sounded super cool. That sounded good. I, I believe it. It sounded Hoover. so good. So we're going to go look up the president's. What is it? Spotify. Uh, Spotify. Mm-hmm. His playlist. That's cool. Good. Good variety. If you want my playlist, uh, it's one song over and over and over. And it's by the Bee Gees, and uh-huh. it is? It's actually Xanadu. Oh, Xanadu. That's such a great song. Xanadu. Xanadu. That was a weird show. Do you remember that? Yes. Those are the days. Xanadu. Well, in fact, we'll be playing it in just a few minutes, I'm sure. When we come back, we'll be playing Xanadu. Uh, we're going to have Mike look that up. Um, great stuff. We're going to be talking with Pamela Pereski. And she's got some really interesting research um, out of the University of Chicago about what motivates you. Are you a giver, a taker, a matcher is another term they use. But it might be that one of the reasons you're not motivated at work is because you're not 
using your gift of being a giver or a taker or a matcher. We'll do a little quiz with you when we come back. Try to pick your brain. Find out what you've got. Stick with us, folks. Dr. Pereski will be with us in just a minute. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Uh, we promised you we'd be playing the song Xanadu. We will be doing that a little bit later in the show. My favorite song ever. Uh, with, we'll be doing that with the BYU or Sports Nation guys because they love great music. But uh, right now we'd like to bring on Dr. Pamela Pereski. And Dr. Pereski is going to help us walk through some research that they've been doing lately about human motivation. She's a human development and psychology professor from the University of Chicago. And while she was there, a study uh, was done by Adam Grant that is, is helping us understand one of our maybe our motivation styles, I guess. Are you a giver? Are you a taker? Are you a matcher? She's here to help us uh, sort this through. Dr. Pamela Pereski, welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. Thank you for having me. Great to have you. And so, I mean, it really is. It's Sometimes it's hard to stay motivated in life. You know, there's just so many things. And if you're not, like, motivated by, you know, high grades in high school or if you're not motivated by money at work, it may be sometimes hard to stay motivated. So you've, I guess, been researching uh, human motivation? I have. Um, not the research that you're talking about. That's Adam Grant's research. Right. He's a fabulous researcher at, uh, at the Wharton School of Business at the University of Pennsylvania, and I've been writing about his work and some work of others. What, what, what are you, just kind of summarize Adam's work for us and then teach us what, what are some of the keys to, to motivation? Well, um, so let's start with Adam's work. He, he wrote a, an incredible book called uh, Give and Take, and um, he outlines a, a way of looking at uh, the ways that people operate with reciprocity, you know, what generosity means to people. And he defines three different categories of operating with generosity. One kind of people are givers. Um, givers seek out ways to be helpful and give to others. They want people to achieve their goals, and they want to help people achieve their goals. They're concerned about other people's well-being. They do what they can to facilitate other people getting their needs met. Um, they help others without any strings attached. Um, and they actually prefer to be on the contributing end of an interaction. Hmm. You know, these are people what we all love to be around. They yeah. want to help us. Uh, they make us feel good. And what givers will typically do when they meet somebody new is try to figure out what they might contribute that could benefit that person. Huh. So that's, you know, that's a giver. Yeah, totally. Then there are takers. Oh, yeah. Takers focus on getting as much as possible for themselves. Uh, they know what they want. They're assertive. They're not shy about demanding things. Um, they put their own needs first. They try to get other people to serve their ends. And they're protective about their own expertise and time. Yeah. Uh, takers can have a very broad network, but they need that because they burn a lot of bridges. Ah. So the difference between these two, Arthur Brooks actually talks about them in a different way um, in an article that he wrote uh, called Love, People, Not Pleasure. Hmm. Um, he talks about the difference between 
loving people and using things, which is how you would categorize a giver. Right. And loving things and using people, which is probably how you would categorize a taker. Interesting. And then there are matchers. And then the matchers is the third one. What's that one? Yeah, a matcher is somebody who tries to maintain an even balance of give and take. They play what game theorists call tit for tat. So that's the uh, matching someone else's generosity toward them or punishing somebody who has been a taker. So they expect reciprocity. They believe that what goes around comes around, and they actually do their best to make that belief into a reality so everything is fair and just. So matchers keep score. Givers don't keep score, they just give. Matchers will give to a giver, but they keep score, and they expect reciprocity when they give. Wow. And what they do, too, is they'll reward givers by reciprocating directly, or they'll even pay it forward. But in a world of takers, it's really important to have matchers, because givers can be uh, taken advantage of. Sure. And um, matchers make sure that that givers don't get taken advantage of because they make it their mission to punish takers. Yeah. It's it's such an interesting idea. So this is going on. We, we kind of self-select you know, into one of these categories. I guess it's kind of our natural way of approaching life, it sounds like. And- well, it can be a sort of broad, um, uh, a broad way of approaching life, but we're, no, none of us is like this all the time. We're, some of these things are situation-specific, and okay. that was one of the things that I... Uh, was identifying in the in the article that I most recently wrote for the Psychology Today blog, right. um, is a situation in which you would think people would operate like givers because they're uh, making phone calls for a university and encouraging people to donate. Um, but they're actually operating like takers because the environment in which they were working was so, um, uh, so sort of dog-eat-dog. Yeah, kind of out to get you. So based on that environment, you you would just naturally then take on the taker approach. Or if you're in a community, you know, organizing, you know, serving the community environment, you might naturally take on a more giving approach. Yeah, that's right. So when when you have an environment that encourages giving, you're more likely to act like a giver. And when your environment encourages uh, making sure that your own interests are met then you're more likely to act like a taker. Mm. It's uh when I love this idea because it it, all, it it just gives us another angle to kind of look at what's going on in our lives and in our work. If you if you're at work and you realize that man, I seem to give a lot and never get anything in return, you might be a giver in the midst of a bunch of takers. Yeah, that's right. And um and there are two different kinds of of givers that Adam Grant identified. There's the selfless giver. And this is a giver who constantly puts other people's needs first and even ends up letting their own work get behind because they're always doing things for other people. Mm-hmm. And this is what he calls a doormat. Yeah. <laughs> so people can get taken advantage of, and then their own work suffers, and their needs don't get met, and their well-being even suffers. So that's a kind of giver that needs to learn how to be more assertive, needs to, needs to learn how to take care of themselves more. And, and what was the other type of giver? And the other type he calls an otherish giver. And this is, this is what I love about uh, looking at givers this way, is givers who are able to also advocate for themselves, who are able to, to um, give without inflicting a high cost on themselves and continue to give. They're not 
turning into takers. They're not even turning into matchers. They're still givers, but they are able to give and not sacrifice themselves. Yeah, so they can keep giving. Right. And actually, that's the, uh, the little paradox there is that you would think that the selfless giver is actually more altruistic because they're not really expecting anything for themselves. Right. But they get so burned out, they end up giving less than the otherish giver who takes more care of themselves. Huh. It's such an interesting dynamic because we, nobody thinks of it to that degree. And yet if I'm wearing myself out in my giving, then I'm, I'm fairly ineffective in the end. Also, I, I guess, is the goal to be balanced in all of these? Well, the the goal is to do what's effective, and um, giving is effective in a lot of ways. It's beneficial for you as a giver, in addition to being beneficial to others. There's a, there's a lot of um, evidence that not only is being a giver in the workplace, for example, as long as you're an otherish giver, that's really associated with being very successful at work. Yeah. Um, but there's also health benefits. There are health benefits and emotional health benefits. The more giver-like a person becomes, the more likely the person is to experience well-being. And, and that has to do with um, things like activating the reward and meaning centers in the brain, because giving actually lowers cortisol and elevates endorphins. Hmm. Psychologists call this uh, uh, the helper's high, and economists call it the warm glow of giving. <laughs> <laughs> that, that, that beautiful warm glow of giving. Um, again, we're speaking here with Dr. Pamela Pereski from um, the University of Chicago, and she's teaching us about some work that that originally, I guess, started by Adam Grant in some of his um, work. But she's she's actually, I think, simplified a lot of it, just made it easier for us to understand the motivational side of this. And she's done so in a Psychology Today article that uh, that we're getting into today. Let's take a break, come back, continue with Dr. Pereski, and find out more about uh, another term she's going to introduce to us called umwelt. I'm dying to figure it out. She, it's so cool when you think about it. The research is is about human development and motivation, folks. It's it's growing uh, so abundantly now that new words, new ideas, but ideas that I think can help unleash your motivation, your success, your ability to reach people. Stick with us. This is The Matt Townsend Show. We'll be right back. back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Are you a giver, a taker, or a matcher? That's what we're talking about with our guest, Dr. Pamela Pereski. She uh, has a PhD in human development and psychology from the University of Chicago, and she is also the author of a, of a, a really, I think, a, a kind of an interesting, I'm always into these, it's called a guided journal called A Year of Kindness. Which uh, which helps kind of walk you through, I guess, over a year um, activities to help you be kind. Is that is that what uh, that year of kindness is about, Pamela? Yeah, the a year of kindness is a journal that 
prompts you to write the things you're grateful for. And we all know now all the benefits of keeping track of the things that we're grateful for, focusing on gratitude. Um, But people don't typically combine that with making note of the kind things we've done for other people. So when we do kind things for other people, we actually uh, start focusing on that. And by writing it down, we keep our focus on that on the kind things that we do for others, on service, on uh, meeting other people's needs. And it makes our lives more meaningful. Yeah. I mean, and, and think about how simple that is. It's it's free. It is free. And, and it's probably, you know, as effective as most therapy in the end because it's we can do it every day. And the more we get our mind wrapped around the gratitude, it helps. As we were talking about giver, taker, matcher, um, if if let's just say if I work for a charity and I need to call to get donations on the phone, it seems like I mean I guess I could probably do it from any approach a a, a giver approach or a taker approach, um, but if I want to be effective, I guess giver is going to in the end be the way to do charity. Well, that's where the concept of Umwelt comes in. Yeah. This is a concept derived from theoretical biology. Um, a biological umwelt is the perceptual world in which an organism exists. In other words, um, the perceptual world in which a bat exists is different than the perceptual world in which we human beings exist, even if we occupy the same space. Okay, yeah. And uh, neuroscientist David Eagleman from Baylor College of Medicine writes about this, and, and he mentions the biological umwelt in one of his amazing TED Talks. Uh, but extending this concept of the umwelt beyond biology, your umwelt, the subjective world you inhabit, is both the reality you live in and the lens through which you see the reality you're living in. Right. So it impacts how you interact with whatever is going on in your life. In some situations, your umwelt creates a reality in which you act effectively, and in others, you're not able to see any possibility for effective action given the umwelt you have that's okay. not serving you. Right. So when you talk about making phone calls to uh, ask people to make donations, if your umwelt, if your subjective world of that job is bothering people at dinner time <laughs> right. to try to get them to do something they weren't otherwise going to do, your effectiveness is not going to be very high. Sure. But if your subjective world of that, if the umwelt is that you're offering people the opportunity to make a meaningful difference in someone else's life, and you yourself, by offering that opportunity, are making a meaningful difference in someone's life, your effectiveness goes up. Mm. Do you know what? I have, I've actually seen that in my own life with – so I do a lot of speaking, and I'll hold a really big event. I'll have a 1,000-something people in the room. My goal for the event is – to like change lives, to help people, to motivate people. And then at the end, I'm supposed to, you know, hey, and if you guys want to buy my books or products, they're right over there. I never get to that ever. I never get to that. So my my people, they keep questioning my umbel. Like, why don't you just ask them to buy your stuff? They just came here and you, they loved you. Now get them to just buy your stuff. But it does not jive with me. It doesn't. So here I am. I could probably make more money if I was a taker, um, but it's not my umwelt. I wanted to give and they don't jive. Mm, I completely resonate with that. I have exactly the same. Don't you hate that? (laughs) 
I wish so bad I could just be a taker and just keep asking. For, I even go do free. I'll go do radio shows or appearances all the time for free, and I will never. Uh, I'll never even pitch myself. Right, right. Well, and you and I share this, uh, the umwelt of sales, yeah. for example, versus the opportunity for our work, which we do believe in, which right. we think makes a difference, the opportunity to offer that to somebody to make a difference in their life. So I, I struggle with the same thing. Uh. I, I work on shifting my umwelt about selling my work, too. <laughs> but that, 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 that is such an important thing because I, all the time I'll see somebody and I'll sense – that their kind of overall their umwelt will be more giving. They're more charitable. They would love to be a teacher, an educator, and yet they're working for a telemarketing firm. And I'm like, how do you do that? And they're like, really, honestly, I hate it, but it's great money. Can, can somebody can can somebody keep doing that, or eventually does that just tear you apart? Well, that's a really good question. I I don't know a direct answer to that, but I can imagine that. Um, Unless a person is able to see, especially somebody who is who seems to be more of a giver themselves, who would like to go into a helping profession, yeah. Unless they're able to see the meaning in their work, unless they're able to see how what they do um, matters, you know, yeah. And who's affected by it in a positive way? I'm not sure that is sustainable. Wow. And, and the other thing is that we, we're very funny creatures. You know, we all know intellectually that money doesn't make us happy. Right, right. And yet we operate like it does. Oh, for sure. <laughs> we need it. Yeah. It's like we've, we've like dichotomized it in our brain. Yeah, I mean, certain, certainly a certain level of financial stability is, is very, very helpful and in some cases necessary, up to a certain point necessary yeah. um, in order to have a certain level of happiness. Um, but after that, more money does not lead to more happiness. And yet there's some research that was done a number of years ago where um, people were asked how much money they think they need in order to be happy. And no matter what level of income people had, as long as they had up to a certain amount, yeah. everybody said 40% more. It just turned out to be 40% really? more. And, of course, that's not the case because the people who actually had the 40% more than you know, the certain level, they wanted 40% more too. <laughs> so we're just funny creatures about that. We're very bad at predicting what's going to make us happy. That's true, isn't it? Um, in fact, is the job then of – I'm thinking if I'm a business manager and I'm trying to create a culture and an environment that's conducive to motivating all of these types, um, I, I, I'm assuming that I would want to create a culture which would allow us – to have givers still be able to connect passionately with the giving mission of the company and takers still be able to connect to the taking side. In fact, I've had, I worked with a company that had an, an awesome and incredible mission. And then what they would always say about the mission, because everyone bought into the mission, they'd say, remember, folks, if there's no margin, there's no mission. Mm-hmm. And, and it, what it created for me was this wonderful gap of saying, look, I love the mission. I believe in the mission. And we only need to make money to facilitate the mission. Mm-hmm. And it, so for a giver, for me, in my mind, it kind of bridged the two. Is that my job to create that bridge if I'm a manager? Or is that my job as the employee to go in and find my own bridge? Well, I think it's all of our jobs um, in whatever position we're in to create the, 
meaning for what we're doing. But it really is very helpful if a boss is able to create an umwelt for the company that people can step into. Yeah. Um, you know, what, what Adam Grant did in uh, working with university call centers is brought in a scholarship student who just talked to the people for five minutes about how meaningful their work was. Um, and they then became more effective. They saw the result of what they were doing. Um, and immediately their, their effectiveness in both how much time they spent on the phone and how much money they raised spiked up to 400%. And they didn't know that their umwelt had shifted. Hmm. When, when he asked them afterwards to what they attributed their uh, increase in effectiveness, nobody mentioned that five-minute interaction with the scholarship student. So that's an example of a boss or a manager or a leader being able to shift an umwelt for a company or for a team. But then we also have the ability to do it for ourselves. And we do it all the time. You know, for example, if you buy a new car, you see that car everywhere. Mm-hmm. Now your focus is, is different. Yeah. Um, for women who become pregnant or, or are thinking about becoming mothers, they see pregnant women and children everywhere, you know, where they didn't notice them before. So what shows up in your reality is a function of the umwelt that you have for that. So when you focus on doing things for other people, what shows up for you are opportunities to do things for other people. And the more you do things for other people, the more grateful you are. And the more grateful you are, the happier you are. And all of this is just a, a, a wonderful kind of spiraling up. Yeah. And then in addition, kindness is contagious. So when there's an environment in, in a, an office or in a company where people are encouraged to be kind, encouraged to help each other, encouraged to act like givers, then people are more likely to act like givers. And takers actually will act like matchers because the otherish givers and the matchers will keep them accountable. Mm. Do you know what? It's really – I think it's powerful. I think it's a really interesting angle on life and – I appreciate your work. Again, everybody, you can find that on Psychology Today. If you just go look up Psychology Today, you can go find Dr. Pamela Paresky. Uh, wonderful blog entries there as well. And also um, you can go look for a copy of her um, guided journal, A Year of Kindness. Really interesting stuff, folks. A little bit of everything, right? we got to learn just every tool we can. Let's take a break. When we come back, we'll be visiting our buddies down at BYU Sports Nation. Stick with us. We'll be right back. There it is. My favorite song of all time. Xanadu from Xanadu the Musical uh, with Olivia Newton-John. My first girlfriend. Let's shoot it down now to my buddies at uh, BYU Sports Nation. Hello, Spencer and Jerome. Olivia Newton was your first crush? Not my crush. My first girlfriend. I thought it was Abba for a second. No, Abba was my second. Farah was my third. (laughs) I had a very vivid imagination and childhood. <laughs> it was Clearly. some seriously good living for a nine-year-old boy. Oh. <laughs> How you doing, guys? We're fantastic. Uh, you know, I, I am too. Thanks for asking. 
And <laughs> is well, I thought for sure I would get one of you singing along with Xanadu. Xanadu. No, is that Spencer? No, that Xanadu. was Spencer, actually. You that can't time. tell when we're no, I can't. When, when you guys go falsetto, you both just sound like Olivia. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> is that awkward? Probably. Hey, guess what day today is? I have no idea. You I got didn't three look choices. The There's three days today. <laughs> Lemonade. You didn't look at the random calendar. Yes. That is so rude. Is that like the Mayan calendar? <laughs> uh, Whatever le- the source for all this. Stuff. This is the source of truth. Focus. Lemonade Day. Okay. Chocolate Pecan Pie Day or National Radio Day. I'd like you each to choose your favorite. Lemonade Day, Chocolate Pecan Pie Day, or National Radio Day. I'm going to go with the most random, Chocolate Pecan Pie Day. Lemonade. And you're going with Lemonade. Yeah. And I'll go with National Radio Day. Okay, once again, not even on the same page. Um, <laughs> hey, are you guys doing your show thing today? We, we are. Are you going to tell us which day it is? Every It's all three of them. It's, all, it's really all three of those today days? Today is one day where three days converge. You know, you well, think because you guys have a radio slash TV show that you would be focusing on National Radio Day, but it's all three. I'm sorry, I misunderstood. I thought you wanted us to pick one of no. the three, and it was only one of the three. No, but it's all three. No, yeah, you guys, you guys, you 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 think you just know everything because you do a really cool show. On our show, we bring you three days in one. <laughs> bring in the meat, man. <laughs> bring bring in bring the, in the meat. info meat. Hey, um, so here's the deal. There, I watched a video last night that blew my mind. I had never in my life seen it, but it was the university. It was from the University of Utah. Put not the university, but somebody made had had a video of a guy that laughed about BYU's 2015 schedule. Have you seen that? Oh, the home. Oh, schedule? Yeah, 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 yeah. That is funny. When are you guys going to make a video like that about the U? Um, Never, because they do it, they do it themselves. Awesome. Well, the thing is, they they make funny videos themselves. Yeah. Hashtag together we reached. Listen to <laughs> to BYU's point. Boise State and Cincinnati, those are solid. Uh, East Carolina, those are yeah. fine, right? Uh-huh, Boise yeah. State went to a New Year's Six game for right. basic, won twelve games. That's a really good game. Actually. Right, it's kind of a tier two game. Uh, yeah, is there not a P five on the schedule? No. Next year, UCLA and Mississippi State are on the home schedule. Utah State is too. Utah State is too. Uh, in 2019, USC, Washington, Utah, Utah, Utah and Wisconsin. Wisconsin no, Wisconsin 2017. Moved to 2017. Yeah. There are four P5s. So just wait a minute, <laughs> and you get some good ones. 2013, BYU had Boise State, Georgia Tech. You, like, come on. See that? That's why I'm excited for the rivalry to kind of come back. It's a Power Five good game. Utah finished ranked last totally. season. They had a tremendous football basketball season. Yeah. It's even a good in 20, game. Even in 2017, they have Utah, Wisconsin, and Boise at home. Uh, awesome. This just in from Awesome. Yes. <laughs> By the way, where is Awesome located? Mm. Provo. The 84602, dog. Straight that- out of Awesome. <laughs> Straight in the 801. <laughs> you guys are nuts. Hey, uh, <laughs> you guys still doing that show thing that you do? We are, we are doing we, the show today. We've got to hurry to let you go do it, but what, what's coming up on the show? We are discussing which fan base should be more concerned about the season opener, BYU or Nebraska. This stems mm. from suspensions, 
injuries, the unknown. Nebraska's got a new head coach. BYU's got Taysom Hill coming back from his injury for his first start since that season ender. Yeah, and and Matt, Nebraska's uh, stud punt returner, the best returning punt returner in the country. Mm-hmm. Uh, out six to eight weeks, he will miss the Nebraska oh, game with foot injury. So I, I hate seeing guys hurt, but that, that's beneficial for BYU. Plus, Absolutely. BYU Athletic Director Tom Homel, it's Education Week on campus. He always gives uh, uh, does a Q&A session with people. He answered some interesting questions about the Utah series, the Notre Dame series. Mm-hmm. BYU is a football-only Power 5 invite, the Mountain West Conference, and the ESPN contract. So we'll tell you, we'll tell you what he said. Oh, my heavens. The inside scoop from Homo. And we're not giving you three days in one like your show. But I know. It's just, it's just one day, no. but it's every and, day. And you know what else? You guys squeeze it all into one hour. So it's jam-packed. Isn't that the amazing part? That is amazing. Efficiency. Well, you guys, happy Lemonade Day and happy Chocolate Pecan Pie Day. Xanadu. I'm going to go ask Don if he'll buy us all chocolate pecan pie and some lemonade. And we'll bring you some. Let us, if let it's us National know. National Radio Day, he should. National right? Radio Day. We're celebrating. Celebrate! National. Have a good show, gentlemen. Thank you, Thanks, sir. Thanks, Matt. Peace out, yo. Man, it's hard to be hip. Did you hear that, Mike? I was like, peace out, yo. Yeah, you, I think we could work on that. No, hold it. What do you, that, that was hip. Yeah. By the way, this is a very eclectic show today. Xanadu. Very, very. To me then talking, peace out, yo. That was hard to find. I tried to play it earlier, and I couldn't find I it. it. We, we were yeah. looking in the wrong genre. <laughs> you didn't know you were looking for like a, a, a Broadway show. Yeah, I, I thought it was like a... European rapper or no, something. No, it's, it's a musical. It's not ABBA. It's, it's a <laughs> musical. Hey, did you hear this crazy story about uh, rescue crews saving a man from a washing machine? I don't no. know why this reminded me of you, Mike. Um, <laughs> a Sydney man seems to have taken the tactic to new heights by becoming trapped in a washing machine for hours until a rescue crew arrived to free him. The rescue crew had to design a method of freeing the man on the fly. The 22-year-old uh, guy uh, was um, uh, sadly a little aut- – he was autistic, mildly autistic. He became trapped in the front loader up to the waist uh, for close to three hours before firefighters could free him. I mean that's hard. Trapped in a, trapped in a front-loading washer. Well, I'm impressed he got in there first of all. And I'm impressed that they got him out. Yeah, they got him out. I think they just Jaws put a couple, of quart- couple <laughs> quarters in. <laughs> you know, once it you know just rotates a few times, you pop right out. Um, anyway, they, it, they finally worked it out. Freed him, took him to the hospital as a precaution. Uh, anyway, nobody knows how he was unstuck. And actually, nobody knows how he was stuck. It's a mystery. It's one of the great mysteries of the world. Hey, as we, um, as we like to do on the show, as we're prone to do on the show, we like heroes, right? And um, again, just before I tell you this last hero story, remember, when I talk about a hero, I think the heroes are everywhere, right? I don't think they just – they're just not you. They're not me. But they're everywhere. And on any given day, you got one in your family. You got one in your neighborhood. But um, let's, let's get to – Townsend's Heroes. Today's hero, folks, uh, is a fast-acting motel manager who saves dozens of lives. This is being reported by Newser.com. It's a, basically the story is about a fast-acting manager 
who evacuated a Washington motel minutes before a massive explosion. He's now being credited with saving dozens of lives, including some who were staying in rooms that were reduced to rubble. The blast Tuesday night critically injured a gas company worker and knocked back firefighters, but the guests were safely uh, away from the building before it tore apart the Motel 6 in Bremerton. Two people initially were unaccounted for, but the Bremerton fire chief says no bodies were found in the debris and that he's almost certain the missing guests were not caught in the explosion. More than 60 people were staying in the hotel, though it's unclear how many were in the building when it was evacuated. Fire chiefs credit the motel manager, Tanya Hines, with quickly evacuating the building because she smelled and heard a gas leak. He also lauded the hotel guests for heeding the fire alarm, folks. People have been there when you hear a fire alarm go off and you don't do anything. The, uh, the firefighter said, we see that a lot. But the one time that you should have gotten out and you didn't, it might turn out bad. Hines, our hero of the day, says a passerby came to the office to say that gas line was leaking at the back of the three-story motel. She went and checked it out, eventually smelled the gas and pulled the alarm and started moving the gas out of the way. Pretty cool, folks. She would, I'm sure, just say, I was just doing my job. Well, no, you're a hotel manager. Your job isn't to go detect gas and then, you know, move everybody out of the building, but she did it. When you think about it, in the end, folks, um, average person doing many times, if you notice, the heroes say their job, but also, in the end, they're, um, they're putting other people before them. On the show today, we've been talking about givers and takers you know, it might be good at time to become a taker in life. The problem is takers in the end uh, walk away as just takers. And in the end, we probably need a lot more um, givers out there in the world. So if your instinct is to give, if your instinct is to start to look after the people, you know, maybe it's okay that we, we create a world with, with fewer takers. I'm tired of just everybody looking out for themselves. And, you know, the principle of reciprocity, I think, is an awesome principle. You know, I should love you. You should love me. If you love me, it's reciprocal. We'll make you will take care of each other. But there might be a higher principle than reciprocity. It might just simply be just goodness. Sometimes we just need to be good because it's the right thing to do, even if you get nothing in return. Folks, that's the show. Remember, we couldn't do it without you. We're here every Monday through Friday, 9 to noon Eastern time. And uh, in just a few minutes, you're going to be shot straight to BYU Sports Nation. Stick with us, folks. This is uh, BYU Radio. Take care until tomorrow.